This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. Well, I'm excited because after a much, much too long hiatus, we are once again joined by our resident in many different uh, expert in many different subjects. Those subjects include happiness, dentistry, comedy, and growing your hair five or six inches l- taller than Don King is able to grow his. That's right. You've guessed it. Very, very pleased to welcome back this hour comedy writer, stand-up comic, host, author, producer, director, and former dentist, Jeffrey Gurian. Jeffrey, great to see you. Frank, it's so good to be on with you. I really, I always look forward to this. We have Same such a here. blast. We really have so much fun. I've missed you. How have you been? I miss you too. I've been great. I've been great. And I actually have a picture with Don King. We met at the Friars Club. Uh, not, not, that doesn't surprise <laughs> me in the least. And we thought it would be funny to take a picture together. Uh, how do you, you get your hair like that? It's a combination. It's a combination of electricity and Viagra. <laughs> I stick my finger in a light socket and I take that blue pill and it just pops right up. <laughs> Did Amazing. you actually? Because I have thick hair. I even though I, I I don't want to destroy anyone's illusions that only knows me from radio. I happen not to be black, but I have hair very similar to a black man. And I toyed with the idea of trying to tease it out like Don King, but I couldn't figure it out. I don't know if that's a product that he does, or if you have to train it in a certain way. Did you guys compare notes on that at First all? First of all, it takes a lot of courage. It to does. Do that. Because your hair is your identity. Right. It's the reason why when you go into the service, the first thing they do is shave your head. Because they want everybody to be the same. If you have no hair, you know, your hair makes a statement. Most men wear their hair like they're embarrassed for having any. It's almost like an apology. I'm sorry I have hair, and I'll try and wear it in a way that you don't notice. You know, it's very inobtrusive. My hair grows outward. So I always feel like I look a little thinner when I get a haircut because whenever I get a haircut, people say, oh, you look like you lost weight. Meanwhile, I haven't lost any weight. I lost two (laughs) inches, uh, maybe maybe two ounces from the hair that was on my head. But, you know, in the last couple of years, I've developed this single gray streak in my hair, kind of like Tulsi Gabbard has or Pepe Le Pew. Someone actually asked me, this was another comedy writer, believe it or not. Someone actually asked me if I was intentionally dying this gray streak. (laughs) I'm thinking, why would I? Yeah, I can't wait to go gray. Right, I know. No, but it's amazing to even have hair. So many men. Yes, you have great hair. Thank you. You have nice thick hair. Knock wood is right. Yeah, Yeah, it's a wonderful thing to have hair. That it is. Hey, I want to pick your brain on a number of things. I know you're doing something very exciting that uh, we're going to let our listeners in on an opportunity to come see you very soon. And I've seen you perform many times, and it's always a a real treat. I do have to get your take on uh, something that that happened last week in the world of show business, the world of entertainment, the world of comedy. The uh, decision, well, the twofold decision, James Corden leaving the Late Late Show, which was sort of the late, late show on CBS, had been hosted by Tom Snyder, Craig Kilborn, Craig Ferguson, and uh, Craig uh, uh, James Corden's been doing it these last few years. 
And CBS did something very interesting, and they decided that they're not replacing him. They're not going to have a new host. They're going to go with a totally different format. I think some sort of a, a modern game show style format or something. And a lot of folks are saying this represents a new era in late night television and these late night comedy shows. One, you have any thoughts on James Corden and his legacy as one of these late night hosts generally? And two, what do you think this portends for the future of late night comedy television? You know, James has been getting a lot of weird press lately. Yeah, that's for know? sure. A lot of it not so not so positive. Not so positive, and I think that had a lot to do with it. Late night TV used to be a lot, a lot more entertaining. It's become very political, and I think that's turned a lot of people off. People, people want you know. We're surrounded by politics every day. Absolutely. The world is in a horrible place. People are hating each other. We're so divided. And I, don't, I think that they used to look forward to late night TV as an escape. And, you know, as soon as you go political, you lose half your audience. You know, it, it's funny. Johnny Carson, you know, he made jokes about politics and politicians, but he sort of made fun of everybody. Of everybody. I, it, you kind of just watching his jokes, watching his monologues, you didn't really get a sense of where he fell on the political spectrum. Exactly. I'm sure, you know, he did have a lot of pronounced political beliefs, but who, I mean, who cares if the jokes didn't reflect that? These days, there's really nobody that does that. There's really nobody that's sort of an equal opportunity exactly. political offender. Exactly. And the same with journalism. Mm. It's very obvious what side they're on. And, you know, right away, like when I do shows, I always tell comics, don't do political stuff because right away you lose half your audience. You don't know who's out there. And uh, that's not why people are coming. People need to laugh. After the last three years, Frank, people are so stressed out. You know, I read an article. I don't know if I brought it with me. It said that 77% of Americans are dealing with some kind of addiction, mm. mostly due to stress. 77%, whether it's alcohol or drugs or food or gambling or shopping, some kind of thing, because people need to feel better. Yeah, I, I am a little surprised that it's that high, but I'm not that surprised if that's an accurate number, because we've been chronicling, particularly since this pandemic and the lockdowns, all the stresses, the anxiety, the depression that people have been dealing with. And that's actually one of the things that I want to bring up with you. By the way, uh, Jeffrey Gurian is my guest in studio for the hour. We have a special number for tonight if you want to call in. It is 833-969-4447. That's 833-969-4447. Whenever I see 444, I always think of that Abbott and Costello routine of, 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 called Brian 4444. Uh, but it's 833-969-4447. If you have questions about comedy, uh, happiness, etc., please feel free to call in. One issue that we talked about a lot last week that a lot of people had varying views on is the the issue of happiness and money about the challenging the old notion and reviewing some new data on this front about whether or not. Uh, money can actually buy happiness. Now, what's your take on this, Jeffrey? Where do you come down on that? It's such an interesting thing. I know a lot of very rich people that are miserable. Mm. You know, money allows you to be miserable in nicer places. <laughs> That's really the truth. You can, you, you know, it gives you freedom. Money is freedom. But it depends on, you know, is there enough? You know, like when I read about these corporations laying people off, 
it makes me so aggravated because, okay, let's say this corporation makes $20 million a year. So what's wrong with only making $18 million a year? Why does that mean that you have to fire people from their jobs? Who said that every year you must make more and more money? You know, the the CEOs of these companies walk away with millions and millions of dollars. And meanwhile, a lot of average people are getting fired. I don't understand that. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And, and it's one of the things that we've seen in radio the radio stations and the radio companies that are owned by publicly traded corporations because they have to show to their shareholders all the time a slightly higher return or they're uh, not necessarily uh, they're managing their debt in a better way. They do these slash and burn uh, tactics, which results in weekends, overnights that are wall to wall infomercials and just garbage programming. And, you know, that's one of the things that we're blessed with at this radio network is that we're owned by a privately held company. And John Katz Matidis doesn't have anybody to answer to except himself. <laughs> right, right. And I think that's reflected exactly. in the in the programming. So the the verdict, as far as you're concerned, is it sounds like it depends whether or not money. It depends happiness. on the person. If you're happy, you know, there's that thing that you can't make other people happy until you're happy yourself. H- happiness is a very elusive thing. It's nothing that lasts every day all the time. It's a state of mind that you have to work hard to achieve. You know, and I love talking about it because I work very hard to stay happy. And there are days when I'm not. Mm. And I have to remind myself. I make things like a gratitude list, which is very, very important to do. And I, I, I always advise people, you know, all my limbs work. I can see. I, I, my senses are functioning. I'm great. I have a nice apartment. I have a car. I have things that a lot of people don't have. I have a wonderful family. I have beautiful daughters. And, uh, you know... I have to write these things down sometimes because people tend to take things for granted. Another thing that came up the other day is the Surgeon General warned about a problem, a public health crisis when it comes to loneliness. And basically what he said was that loneliness was essentially the equivalent in terms of its effect on mortality and your health of smoking 12 or 13 cigarettes a day. Mm -hmm. You have a lot of people listening to us right now, as is the nature of late-night radio, who are lonely Mm -hmm. uh, because folks have moved out of the house, maybe their uh, spouse has passed away. Whatever the circumstance is, they find themselves very lonely. What advice do you give someone like that who is struggling with feelings of loneliness and everything that comes with that? I can speak about that because I've experienced that myself. If you went around with me, you'd think I was the mayor of New York. Oh, I I, have been around with you, and I see the reaction you get. I know a lot of people, but there are times I'm an empath, Mm. which makes me an extremely highly sensitive person. It's a very difficult life. You have to learn to own that sensitivity as a strength and not as a weakness. There was a time in my life I could be in a room full of a 1,000 people and still feel alone, a 1,000 people that were there in my honor. And I could still feel alone. It's a very deep-seated thing. I think it's something that you're born with mm. sometimes. Um, and I think it has to do with a, a, a level of sensitivity. And, um, like, I I get great solace in the comedy community. Whenever I'm feeling off, I go to a comedy club. I just feel the camaraderie of the comedy community. When people are glad to see you, it makes you feel like part of something. You know, I feel bad for people. A lot of people live alone, mm. and COVID brought that to a whole new level. People were locked up and isolated. 
for a very, very long time. We're social animals. We need to be with Absolutely. people. Absolutely. We're not meant to be isolated and be alone. You couldn't even visit people. When I had COVID, my kids couldn't come to visit me. I wouldn't allow them to. And I mean, you just couldn't. It, it was so dangerous. I got sick, you know, in March of 2020 because I'm a trendsetter, Frank. You know, <laughs> I went right out. Got, as soon as it was available, I went right out and got it. And I wound up in the hospital with COVID double pneumonia. Because single pneumonia wasn't good enough for me. <laughs> I went in with both lungs. And I joke about it now, but I was sick for months. And I was very, very lucky. But people were isolated. Isolation leads to loneliness and depression. People tend to feel very alone. And, you know, that's why there are groups. It's important. I used to tell my mom, look for things that are interesting to you, even on the Internet. You know, if you have a computer... It's very important to find things that, that, that stir an interest in you. Go to groups. Go to a library. Find something to read. You know, there are many ways to get out of yourself. Because when you're alone, you tend to think negative thoughts. Absolutely. And, you know, it's funny. I, I think there's a lot of value in social media, especially for people that find themselves unable to leave the house for whatever reason. But I, I think sometimes social media can actually enhance the degree of isolation that people feel oh, about what's going on. Completely. Everybody's on their phone 24-7. It's gotten to the point where you can't call anybody it's true. anymore. It's true. If you call somebody, they get ticked off. They're like, what the F do you want? Yeah, right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Text I can, me. Well, Text me. Uh, you know, uh, my excuse in terms of why I'm ticked off when someone calls is I am asleep at the during the hours when <laughs> most people are, are doing their phone call business. Hey, uh, Jeffrey Gurian is my guest in studio, legendary comedian, comedy writer, uh, uh, host, director, producer, etc. I know we're adding new listeners all the time, very blessed to be adding new stations all the time. And if you're wondering who Jeffrey Gurian is, there's a phenomenal documentary, a short documentary about Jeffrey that sums him up very, very well in 15 minutes. It's called Who the F is Jeffrey Gurian? It's on the YouTube. I've shared it on Facebook as well. But um, go to the YouTube and uh, just type in Who the F is Jeffrey Gurian, G-U-R-I-A-N, and a whole world opens up. It's worth seeing. You could also uh, go to ComedyMattersTV.com. There's a lot of great stuff on there. Hey, uh, so I see you are are on the cover of the very stylish photo, I must say, <laughs> of uh, Sutton Place Social, comic legend Jeffrey Gurian. And uh, you open the inside, there's pictures of you and John Mulaney, you and Nick Kroll, you and Kevin Hart, you and Amy Poehler, you and Amy Schumer, you and Jerry Seinfeld, just to show that you're capable of taking photos with people that aren't named Amy. Amy. Um, <laughs> so uh, this is terrific. How did this uh, this Sutton Place magazine cover come to crazy. fruition? Somebody actually suggested me to the editor, and I got a call one day saying, you know, would you be willing to be our cover girl? Not a cover <laughs> I'm officially a cover girl now. You, right? got, you do have the long hair. so Would you be willing to be our cover story for our January issue? And I said, wow, what an honor. I looked at the magazine. It's a boutique magazine, very special. And it was, it was really great. You know, they came and shot me and used pictures with me and my family and all these people that I've been associated with over the years. And it's um, it's a, it's really weird seeing yourself like that. I'm just hoping that they don't ask for a centerfold. <laughs> that's where I'm drawing the line. I do like you have it. your Gurian Angels jacket in the style of Curtis Lee was Guardian Angels. It's an you? exact, you know, it's such a crazy story. 
Nick Kroll and John Mulaney have been very wonderful friends to me, and they had me open their Broadway show. They had this hit Broadway show called Oh Hello, mm. and during the show, they referenced Curtis Sliwa. They didn't know that I knew Curtis so Sliwa. Yeah, and people don't know. About, you were actually Curtis's dentist, dentist. years I ago. I was his dentist many years ago, <laughs> and, and uh, Lisa, also his first wife, right? And uh, so they referenced Curtis Sliwa, and so they have me open their show for them. And as a surprise, one night, I invited Curtis. And they made me this jacket, an exact replica of the Guardian Angels, but my jacket says Gurian Angels. And they got two models to wear Gurian Angels T-shirts. <laughs> and they had me open this the press conference for the show. So I brought Curtis to the show one night as a surprise. And Curtis wore his Guardian Angels jacket. I wore my Gurian Angels jacket. They didn't make me wear the beret, though, because of my hair. Naturally, yeah. I just had to hold it in a threatening manner. <laughs> Is what they said. I was the head of security, and Fred Armisen was the guest that night. You know, Fred sure. Armisen from SNL, and it, he said it had always been his dream to meet Curtis Lewa, and so he was so thrilled that I brought him, and we have pictures together, all of us. Uh, we got to break in a moment, but since you mentioned Saturday Night Live, that is one of the shows that is off air now due to the uh, Writers Guild strike. I was uh, hoping to tune into Bill Maher's show on Friday. That show was off the air. A, a lot of the late night comedy shows are off the air. A lot of uh, scripted television programs are off the air because of this writer's strike. And I think Pete Davidson strike. was supposed to yeah, host Yeah, this was supposed night, to be right? a big yeah. issue on, yeah. uh, on Saturday night. you have any reaction to what's going on now? Any thoughts about what this might portend for the future of of television in general and comedic television specifically? I think what they want is to get rights for uh, for writers who are writing for the streaming services. Um, for some reason, writers don't get the respect that they deserve. You know, actors can act, but they can only act with what's on That's the script. True. That's true. They need the words. Writers are very important. Years ago, if you wrote for a famous comedian, they didn't often like that you said that you wrote for them. I used to get permission to say it because I... Because if I was a dentist, I didn't want to look like a novelty. I, I, so I had to write for very famous people in order to establish credibility for myself. And I always asked them, is it okay if I said? And they all said yes. But there, there, a lot of writers never got credit because people, there's a lot of comedians who don't want it known that they work with writers. Well, they want to maintain the illusion that they've come up with all with these all jokes this on their own. Stuff, yeah, right. but if you do a lot of TV, you run out of material. I can imagine. So you really need writers. I can imagine. These days, a lot of comics don't use writers. But the Writers Guild is trying to get you know, compensation, I think, for the writers who are writing for the streaming services. When, you've mentioned that you have written for some of the biggest names in, in comedy. When you do that, when you're writing for a Rodney Dangerfield or a Woody Allen or uh, someone that is very, very uh, distinct As in terms of their persona. own their yeah. own voice, how difficult is it to change how you're thinking? Because you, Jeffrey Gurian, deliver a lot a joke a lot different than Woody Allen would. Woody mm-hmm. Allen delivers a joke a lot different than Rodney Dangerfield would, who delivers exactly. it much different than Joan Rivers is. So how challenging is that to have that sort of internal comedic schizophrenia going on in your system? It comes system? naturally. It's like people who write songs. I can just think in their voice. I hear what they say. I write for people who I admire. I love what they do. So I internalize their comedy, and I can tell. It's hard to explain, but theoretically, no comedian should be able to do another comedian's jokes. They should be that personalized. So when I wrote for 
Rodney, he let me tape his act so I could listen to it over and over again. And the same with Joan. And I used to like to work from a tape, but you can just hear their voice and you can know that you have to write the way they would say it. So it's a very good question. You know what I just did is I asked ChatGPT. Are you familiar with ChatGPT? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I asked ChatGPT to write me a comedic monologue about dentistry in the style of Jeffrey Gurian. Oh, really? Okay? Oh, that's so interesting. So um, just seconds ago, right? Yeah. And uh, I'm going to have you review this and see how this compares to the real Jeffrey Gurian in just a moment. Additionally, uh, we're going to tell you how you could see Jeffrey Gurian. He's uh, got a great uh, gig that he's going to be a part of this week featuring him and uh, some other terrific comedians as well. You want to call in, you're welcome to call in. Special number just for today, 833-969-4447, 833-969-4447. Jeffrey Gurian, my guest for this hour, straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. singing jump jump around i thought it was insane in the membrane which is sort of a similar style uh, ju- uh jump around by house of pain believe it or not uh, that song has been associated occasionally over the years with my guest this hour the one and only jeffrey gurian what is the nexus between jeffrey gurian and house of pain because i used to go around to every comedy club Sometimes I did five, six clubs a night. I would jump around to the clubs. And when I was a regular on Sirius XM, they started associating that song with me. And I had a column in the Interrobang, which is a very big comedy website. And it was called Jumping Around with Jeffrey Gurian. So that's what I do. I, I, I jump, love it. I that's jump great. around. That's great. And then, and then you say, when you hear that song, you know, Jeffrey's in the house. I mean, I like the the upbeat nature of the, of you and that song. I could kind of see the, even without the jump around aspect of it, I could see how that would make sense. All right. I'm going to read you this, uh, this uh, comedic monologue written in the style of Jeffrey Gurian and tell me how this compares to how you would actually do. Yeah. And uh, we'll see how many how many comedy writers may be losing their jobs thanks to uh, ChatGPT. All right. Ladies and gentlemen, have you ever noticed how... And just be ready with a rim shot here when appropriate, <laughs> Matt plays. Ladies and gentlemen, have you ever noticed how dentists seem to have a little bit of a sadistic streak? I mean, they're the only people in the world who actually enjoy making you bleed. And what's up with all the weird contraptions they use? I mean, seriously, who thought it was a good idea to stick a metal hook in someone's mouth and start scraping away like they're digging for gold? 
And don't even get me started on the dreaded dental drill. That thing sounds like a combination of a jackhammer and a jet engine. It's like they're trying to drill to the center of the earth through your molars. But you know what's even worse than the actual dental work? It's the small talk. I mean, how are you supposed to make conversation with someone who has their hands in your mouth and can only respond with grunts and nods? And why do they always ask you questions when they know you can't answer? So have any exciting plans for the weekend? Yeah, sure. Let me just mumble unintelligibly while you poke around in my gums. And uh, it kind of goes on like that. Uh, it is, what, what do we give it? A five? Five? <laughs> Four or five. Four? Okay. I'll tell you. A friend of mine did that and asked them to write a story about me. Some of it was true. A lot of it, it was lies. It said that I was responsible for the success of many television shows, <laughs> which is totally false. And, you know, so... It's got some information, but some of it is completely false. Well, same thing with me. I asked it to write about uh, me. It said I was born in Brooklyn. It said I was a very different age than the age that I am, actually. And it said that I actually have two children in- instead of the one with, which I'm aware of. So, all right. Um, but I'll tell you something, though. In my early days, I used to try to do jokes about dentistry. They never worked. Uh-huh. The only thing that worked, I think I told Curtis that that – for security in New York City, they should flood the city with dentists because people are more afraid of the dentists than they are of the police. <laughs> so there should be a dentist on every corner, and it would cut down on crime because who wants to mess with a dentist, right? Is there any connection between the issue we were talking about a couple of minutes ago, the issue of stress and anxiety in the aftermath of the pandemic and the lockdowns, and what's going on with people's health, specifically their dental health? Yeah, there's a tremendous connection. I, I, I actually just did a lecture for this great group, uh, a webinar, to raise money for poor children and, and poor elderly people in Israel who couldn't afford dental care. And we talked about the effects of stress. There's something called the TMJ. Are you mm. familiar with it? Yeah. The temporomandibular joint. It's considered a master joint. It's the joint in your jaw that allows your mouth to open and close. And when people are stressed out, which we have been for the last three years, many people clench and grind their teeth. And the interesting thing is that they don't know that they do it very often. I used to have people in practice whose teeth were worn down to little stubs who insisted that they didn't grind their teeth. And there was no other way that they could get that way. And what happens is that when you overwork the muscles of your face, those muscles go into spasm. Now, if you ever had a cramp in your calf, you know how painful that is. Mm. But when you get a cramp in your head, it doesn't feel the same way because the muscles in your head are not fleshy. Your head feels like it's made of bone, but it's bone covered by a very thin layer of muscle. And when those muscles are overworked, they cramp up, they close down on the blood vessels and the nerves in them, and that's what causes the pulsating headaches. So in this country alone, there's more than 150 million people who suffer with what they think are migraine headaches that are really coming from their jaw the musculoskeletal headaches. So if you wake up in the morning and your neck hurts, the last person in the world you would think to tell would be your dentist. Why would you ever tell your dentist your neck hurts? So dentists need to ask people, when you wake up in the morning, do you ever have neck stiffness, shoulder pain, back pain? Because all that comes from grinding your teeth. Plus, a lot of people are cracking fillings and cracking teeth, and a lot of dentists are reporting that many of their patients are experiencing those kind of problems. All from stress. Wow. Uh, Jeffrey Gurian is my guest. You can check him out, comedymatterstv.com. 
the uh, if someone deals with migraine headaches from time to time, how do they know if they're getting it because they get migraine headaches or if it's tied to something like uh, grinding like teeth clenching or, clenching. or grinding your teeth? Well, they can't diagnose it themselves. A doctor has to do it. But clinically, migraine headache, uh, true migraine headaches, people usually see an aura. They'll see like yellow spots maybe, something like that. They're, they're, there's an aura that's associated with a true migraine headache. But with clenching and grinding causing headaches, it's usually tightness in the neck and shoulder areas and tightness in the jaws, inability to open your mouth too wide. It feels like your teeth are shifting. Sometimes people say, my teeth are getting crooked. They used to be straighter or I'm getting spaces between my teeth because from the grinding, they actually move your teeth. That's the basis behind orthodontia. Mm. And if you put gentle pressure on teeth, they will move. The bone softens. That's how they straighten teeth with braces. You you tighten the wires and you put gentle pressure on. The bone softens and you can move the teeth where you want them to be. But when you're grinding your teeth, you're just moving them back and forth so they get loose. Do you think uh, braces are overused and over... Uh, I don't know if prescribed is the right word, but overused by orthodontists and dentists these days? Not in my opinion. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know... There's an age when they're supposed to start. And again, I'm not an orthodontist, so I don't know. But usually they wait until, um, like, when the jaws are still growing, you have to wait until that is kind of stopping. Sometimes they start kids when they're young. It depends on the problem. If there's a, a prognatism, you know, those people, their chin sticks out. Sure. The bottom teeth stick out further. That they can start fixing usually at an earlier age. But, uh, again, those are questions more for an orthodontist. Gotcha. gotcha. I was just curious. All right. Uh, Jeffrey Gurian is here, a tremendous stand-up comic, comedy writer, host, author. You are performing uh, and doing a great event at the Expo uh, here in New York City on Wednesday. What are you doing? It's a new space, and it's really exciting. It's called the uh, the Expo. It's It's in Chelsea in the Ali Ali Market. You know how Chelsea Marketplace has a big food emporium? Sure. This is a new food court, and I was in there one day for an event, and this young guy comes over to me, um, the manager of the place, and he says to me, are you Jeffrey Gurian? I said, yeah. He goes, hey, I'm a big fan from the Black Phillips show. It's a show that I did with the great Patrice O'Neill, oh, sure. who was a legend in comedy, and it was a great honor to me that he chose me as his co-host. And you know, unfortunately, he left us in 2011 at only 41 years old. Oh. But the, the love for Patrice O'Neill is still very strong. It's amazing. And so he said to me, I'm a big fan of that show. Would you be willing to bring in a comedy show here? And I said, yeah, absolutely. It's a great space. So it's going to be this Wednesday night, May 10th at 8 o'clock. And for your New York listeners, I love your audience, Frank, by the way. You have Terrific. a wonderful Thank audience. You. And I want to invite them with a special email that you can – and I'll give you discount tickets. Anybody wonderful. From Frank Morano's show, the email is Expo Comedy E X P O Expo Comedy May M A Y ten at gmail dot com. So it's Expo Comedy May ten at gmail dot com. And if you send me an email that you'd like to come, I will give you a code for discount tickets. Doors open at seven. There's going to be food and drinks. It's going to be amazing. And some of my comics have been on Fallon, Renan Hirschberg, Jeff Arcuri, Drew Dunn. Aaron Berg and Andre Kim, all from late night TV. Terrific. Festival winners, all amazing. I, I handpicked each of these comedians because I jump around. And I, <laughs> I go to all the comedy clubs 
and I see who's the best of the best, and that's who I choose for my show. I'm hosting. I'll be performing. I'm hosting and opening the show. And so hopefully people will show well, up. Well, that's terrific. So it's uh, if again, if people want special uh, other side of midnight discounted tickets, they can email Jeffrey at expo expo comedy may ten at gmail dot com. This Wednesday night starts at seven. Seven doors open at seven. It's six oh one West Twenty Sixth Street on the West Side. Six oh one West Twenty Sixth. Doors open at seven. Show starts at eight. And it'll probably be over around 10. And so hopefully your listeners can Terrific. come. Well, it's, uh, I've seen a lot of the talent that you've recruited at different events before. And uh, to your point, they are always top notch. But for me, Tell me- the, uh, the, the treat is always seeing you, uh, you perform and do your material. All right. We're going to take one more break. Jeffrey Gurian is here for the hour. Comedy writer, stand-up comic, host. You can see him Wednesday. Just email expocomedymay10 at gmail.com. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight out, straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. I am joined in studio for the hour by a man who has occasionally been described by some as crazy, the one and only Jeffrey Gurian. You can see for yourself this Wednesday, if you're in New York or want to come to New York, exactly how crazy he is. He's going to be at the Expo Wednesday evening. You can email expocomedymay10 at gmail.com. He's a comedy writer, a stand-up comic, producer, director, and former dentist. Uh, who Who is it that tagged you with that? Gnarls Barkley song, Crazy. Who? The, where did that come from? It goes back a while. I just want to say in that email, May 10, the 10 is the number 10. It's not spelled out. Okay, so yeah, it's one May, zero. May, yeah, right. one zero. Okay. Yeah. Uh, crazy, I may have na- I, I may have owned it myself. Yeah, I There were times <laughs> I just felt I related to that song. When Ross Perot ran for president in uh, 1992, he had Crazy as uh, as his, it, not that version of Crazy, but I think it was Patsy Cline's version of Crazy as his campaign theme. Oh, really? Because everyone oh, yeah. called him uh, called him Crazy. Hey, when, if you're a little eccentric. Exactly. That's what they think. Exactly. You know? Trust me, I, I've had that uh, label thrown at me many a time. Eccentric is a nicer word. Although in, in the world of talk radio, I'm about as normal as, as can be. No, yeah? that's for sure. In the, the outside world, forget about it. They're ready to institutionalize me. In the world of talk radio, I'm the normal one. Yeah, yeah. You... You mentioned that one of the things you like to do for fun is uh, check out comedy clubs and uh, spend some time in comedy clubs that you feel like that's home. In terms of television and films these days, I know you obviously work on a lot of films as a writer. You've written more books than most people have read. What do you do in terms of – what entertainment do you find enjoyable 
that doesn't involve live entertainment? Is there anything that you watch that you really – are there any shows that you, for instance, can't miss? You know, that's an interesting question. Thank you. I, I, t- I, tune to, I turn to Netflix a lot. I like action films. I couldn't tell you one that I watched. They're all so similar. They are, everyone's they everyone's child gets kidnapped and they have to rescue them. Like Liam Neeson, you know. Oh, yeah, yeah. Ta- uh, uh, taken one, skills, two, three. Right. You know? So I watch those kind of films because we're surrounded by crime. And I always wish that somebody would be out there who could do that, <laughs> who could settle this thing in this city and get rid of this crime thing. Um, but you, oh, you asked me something and it struck a chord and now I forgot it. Um, about what you watch or prior to that? I think it was prior to that. I don't, you know, I don't really, oh, I love comedy though. I mean, that's really what I do to relax. And I should say this, I'm going to announce it on your show. We're doing something at Gotham Comedy Club in the next month or so, a new TV independent pilot we're shooting called The Raw Side of Comedy. And I was hired as the exec producer in New York, and I brought on Chris Mazzilli, who's the owner of Gotham. We're going to be doing it together with a team of people from Philly. I have a great lineup of comedians, and it's going to be a competition-slash-reality show, some very unusual things. Oh, that's terrific. I can't give away the whole thing yet because the comedians are going to be very surprised at what they have to do. What's the timeline for that? Where can we look forward to seeing that? I would say in the next... Four to six weeks. Terrific. And I'll be on again, hopefully, to, Absolutely. Tell, to talk about it. But we're definitely doing it at Gotham Comedy Club. It's a wonderful space, very elegant. They serve great food, and it's just a nice place to shoot a TV show. They had done Gotham Comedy Live from that place. That was a show that lasted for several seasons mm. through Access TV. And we're using the same crew. Oh, great. So I had seen really that show cool. when my colleague Joe Piscopo was on, and uh, I enjoyed that show. It is a great space. I made my national debut on that show, and John Lovitz was the host that week, and he and I were very old friends from Columbus Cafe days. Do you remember those days? Uh, when, I, you know, I never was you, at the you, Columbus Cafe, but I've seen, I've seen and heard the story. I've see, uh, heard the stories from you and many others and seen some photos of you hanging out with uh, a lot of bold-faced names at Columbus back in the day. Do, do you ever watch the show Marvelous Mrs. Maisel? I have, yes. Yeah. I have. So that, if people aren't familiar with it, it's about a comic, a female comic, could be sort of Joan Rivers, could be sort of Phyllis Diller, it could be a lot of people, who is coming of age, she's Jewish, in um, 19, early 1960s New York. Now, I realize you sort of came of age comedically in, in the 70s and 80s, not necessarily the early 60s. But from what you've seen of that show, does it ring true to you, the, yeah, the comedy aspect of it? It really does. That's why it's so successful. And I'm involved in another show. I mean, that show is going off the air right. this season. It's this the, is last the last season. season. Right. It's interesting that Rachel Brosnahan, who was not Jewish, plays such a wonderful Jewish girl, you know, such a great part. And her dad, I'm blanking on his name, but he also plays a wonderful part. It's very true to life. Well, the actor is Tony Shalhoub. Tony Shalhoub. I yeah. couldn't think of his name, the actor, right. Um, it's a great show. And I was asked to get involved in a show that's set in that time frame. People are very interested in that time frame. When the Catskills was the place to be. Sure. You know, before Bud Friedman opened the improv in 63, there was no such thing as a comedy club. So comedians had to perform in hotels and nightclubs and, you know, like the 21 Club and fancy clubs. But, there, you know, and, and then coffee houses opened up in the village, like where Woody Allen would perform and places like that. But there was no official comedy club until Bud Friedman came along and opened the improv in 1963. And it didn't even start as a comedy club. 
they used to have singers there. Broadway stars would come by after they were done with the show and perform. And after a couple of years, Bud realized that people were coming more for comedy than anything else. Hmm. And he turned it into the world's first comedy club. And it wasn't until 1973 that Rick Newman, who we just lost very recently, opened Catch a Rising Star. And then Richie Tinkin opened the comic strip in 76. That was the third comedy club in New York City. But before that, there were no comedy That's clubs. wild. Uh, that's wild. Well, I didn't realize it was that recent of, uh, of an innovation. But you mentioned that other uh, project that you were involved in that was set in that, in that era. In that time frame. And I'm going to be a script consultant because I was there as a little kid. As a little kid, I sang in a choir. And I was a soloist. I sang in a Hebrew choir. And for the high holidays the Jewish holidays, we would go to the hotels, the Concord, Grossingers, Kutchers, and we would sing for the, for the people that came up for the holidays. And uh, it was an amazing experience. My grandfather owned a nightclub, so I was exposed to show business at a very early age. Growing up, all our family events were at this nightclub, and it was a hot spot. When I met Milton Berle and Jerry Lewis and all, they all knew of my grandfather's place wow. called the, uh, the Red Mill. And so I was exposed to that at a very early age. So, and then I went back as an adult because I was writing comedy for people and I would go to the hotels to meet the comedians that I wanted to meet. That's where I met George Burns and Alan and Rossi, you know, all the comedians sure. wow. of that time. They were all performing up there. The, you were also an accomplished author and uh, semi or pseudo journalist. You uh, spent some time writing for the world's most uh, respected and venerated news publication, the Weekly World News, uh, which uh, I really do miss. That made the supermarket experience worthwhile for me uh, years ago. And there are a lot of news stories that don't kind of get the coverage that they probably deserve. I try to highlight news stories from time to time that um, people may have missed. You have written a book called Man Robs Bank with His Chin. And you've highlighted a number of these news stories that just for some reason have not gotten mainstream press attention. Uh, give us a few examples of, and p- the book's available on Amazon, just search Jeffrey Gurian, G-U-R-I-A-N. Give us a few examples of some stories people may have missed if they didn't read your book. For instance, The Whispering Village of Turkmenistan, where everyone whispers and they live to be over 100 years old. Wow. The main cause of death, Frank, can you guess what it is? No idea. People getting run over by ox carts because they're yelling, (laughs) watch out, watch out. You can't warn anybody when you're whispering. That's the thing. Then there's a college professor fired for casually removing his spine in class. You can't do that. And he would ask the students to help reinsert his spine. And the students would be like, we don't want to be involved in that. What if it goes in wrong? <laughs> you know, another and, victim of cancel culture there. Unbelievable. It's 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 crazy. Man displays uncanny ability to lift heavy objects with his eye. Can you imagine? He started small, li- lifting pennies as a child with his eye. You know how hard that is. I can't get imagine a muscular eye. That's very uh, very very difficult. Yeah, I can't imagine the exercises. He can lift a table with his eye. Unbelievable. With w- just one eye. One eye. Amazing. Man removes own appendix using beer as anesthetic. Oh well, uh, that I can actually see happening. You know, he 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 uh, he got his mother to help him. His mother had been cleaning hospital rooms for many years, and he thought that that gave her the knowledge to help him. So he laid down. He he finished this whole uh, thing of beer, a whole case of beer. 
and he took a serrated, like one of those little uh, forks they use for eating shrimp cocktails. Oh, sure. Yeah. Opened, a, opened himself up with the help of his mother and speared his appendix and took it out and used dental floss to, to, to sew himself up. Amazing. Do you, and, do you know if it was waxed dental floss or uh, unwaxed? No, unwaxed, unwaxed. dental floss. Okay. And he approached the hospital, but the head of the hospital said that surgery is not a party game and it should not be done by drunk men with their mothers. Mm. That was the advice that they gave. Yeah, and that's good advice for people at home. If uh, you need an appendectomy, go to a hospital. Don't try and do it on your on own. On your own. Even surgery. if you have a lot of beer. Exactly. The last story I'll mention is ties in with something that, that, you know, that we spoke about er- earlier. Holding your own hand to avoid loneliness. Ah, that that, that goes hand in hand with what we discussed earlier. Exactly, hand in hand. Uh, Holding your own hand. You see a lot of men walking in the street with their hands behind their back. It looks like they took themselves into custody. See, I've always wondered about that. (laughs) They look like they're handcuffed, but they're just holding their own hand. There you go. Hey, uh, They're all in the book, Man Robs Bank with His Chin and Other Unusual Stories. uh, Missed by mainstream media. Love it. Uh, Jeffrey Gurian is the author. You can get it on Amazon. Hey, I mentioned our mutual friend Joe Piscopo earlier. Uh, his friend, uh, his producer, uh, Joe Sebelia, sort of uh, a protege of mine, used to be my intern many years ago, yes. and uh, took over for me when I left to do this program and stopped producing uh, Joe Piscopo's program. Joe, by the way, does a great Sundays with Sinatra show that's now natu- nationally syndicated mm-hmm. all over the radio. It's doing really wonderfully. It's got a lot to of growth. I all the time. Um, what did you do with Joe Sebelia recently? Joe Sebelia is producing a Friars Club podcast. And he called me, and he said to me he had been, he had more, he had been wanting to have me on for a long time mm-hmm. because my history with the Friars Club goes back to the seventies. Milton Berle was actually my sponsor in the Friars. You're Club. kidding! Wow! If you have a very young audience, they may not even know who Milton Berle was, but hopefully they do. Milton Berle was known as Mister Television because people in this country actually bought televisions just to watch his show. That's how he got that nickname. How did you get to know Uncle Milty? From the Friars Club, and I'm trying to remember who who introduced us. I guess, you know, I was the main writer for the Friars Roast for 12 years, and I guess that's how I got to meet him because we we used to sit together at the club, and he would regale me with stories about his implants, that he was getting his teeth done, spending hundreds of thousands of dollars in Beverly Hills, and he got a kick out of the fact of my other career. But I got to write jokes for Milton, and... We became such good friends that he sponsored me for membership. He was the president of the L.A. Friars, took me to his house when I was out in L.A., and I'm just sitting there talking, and I'm thinking to myself, I'm sitting here with Milton Berle. I grew up watching him on TV as a little kid. I couldn't believe it. And then I got to meet Jerry Lewis and all those guys from the the Golden Age, Red Buttons and Henny Youngman and all. So Joe Sebelia interviewed me for an hour, and we ran out of time. He goes, I have to come back. Oh, that's so great. so many more stories. Is that out? Can people listen to that now? Yes, it's on Apple Podcasts. He just posted it last night. Oh, terrific. So uh, yeah. should, what should they search? Friars Club Podcast? Friars Club Podcast, Jeffrey Gurian, and, and it should come right up. You know, Milton Berle, so, such an innovator in the world of uh, comedy, and as you mentioned, in the world of television, the, the similar groundbreaking comedic print publication in the 50s, the 60s, the 70s had to have been Mad Magazine, right? Recently, yeah, 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 for sure. 
a couple of weeks ago, we lost at 102 years old the cartoonist Al Jaffe, who made that fold-in on the back page of Mad Magazine. He made that his, his thing, and you always kind of bought Mad Magazine if for no other reason, just for that fold-in in the back. Did you read Mad Magazine? I did. I used to love Don Martin's characters, those guys with the strange-shaped heads. You, <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah. man, Don Martin. I used I to like draw I like the spy them. versus spy. I yeah. sat for hours. I would draw the Don Martin things. I, I had a, a facility for drawing, but that to me... I loved Mad Magazine. See, that's the kind of thing, because they don't really publish anymore. I think of all these things that my son will never get to know. Sometimes it's a retail store like Bed Bath & Beyond. I don't really care much about that. But then I do care about the fact that, you know, he'll never have that experience of while we're taking him to the grocery store or a bookstore, leafing through something like uh, Weekly World News or Mad Magazine. I have every issue that I was in. They told me that my stories were so strange that they gave me my own column. It was called Gurian's World of the Bazaar. <laughs> and, and, and I wrote for them for more than a year. I had a story every week, and I loved it. But now I, I believe it's only online. Right. Uh, same thing with Mad It's not now, print too. anymore, uh, same yeah, thing which, with is Mad. A, which is a shame. Exactly. It really – I don't know what the future of print media is, but uh, I, I don't know. Uh, it, it is just something that I certainly do miss. All right. Jeffrey Gurian is my guest. You can see him this Wednesday in New York City. You can email uh, for a special rate for tickets. He's going to be at the Expo in Chelsea. You can email expocomedymay1010 at gmail.com. That's Expo Comedy May 10 at gmail.com. Also, if uh, you pick up Sutton Place magazine, you can actually see uh, Jeffrey on the cover. This could be a whole new career for you as a magazine you, you, model. You never know. <laughs> right? The new Carol Waltz. I, I need the more Carol things Waltz to do. Comedy. Yes. I don't have enough hyphens in my name. I need more things. <laughs> but I hope your listeners come because your audience is a wonderful audience. And I like people that stay up late. I'm a late night person, as you can see. Naturally. I love coming on here. Naturally. I, I don't understand morning people, but I like late night people. So if people come, I will welcome them. I'd like to meet some of your listeners in person. Now, just so people know what they're in store for for this Wednesday, is the uh, comedy kind of edgy? Is it? Uh, is it? Uh, how would you describe the kind of comedy they're in store for this Wednesday? It's not political at all. I don't do that. I don't like to d- divide audiences. I like comedy that's inclusive of everybody. I just talk about things that strike me funny, and so do the comedians that I chose. So you're not going to be offended. There's nothing, you know, these days there's a, there are people home right now who can't wait to be offended by something. Oh, naturally. If they come to my so we've show. we've offended uh, 20 people in the <laughs> 45 minutes we've been if here. If they come to my show, they'll be disappointed. There's nothing offensive that anybody does. Everybody just does stuff to make you laugh because that's what we need. They say laughter is the best medicine, and it's true. I'm on the board of this group called LaughMD mm. that brings comedy to hospitals, to sick people, to cancer patients, and to people in re- recovery. And it's very, very important. Laughter releases endorphins, the pleasure chemical. And it's very, very important. So it's not just a cliche that laughter is oh, the no, best Oh, no, I completely agree with that. Uh, that's been uh, that's been my experience anecdotally, and I think that's been borne out. And I think it's sort of... Is in some ways similar to what the Surgeon General was saying about loneliness earlier, in that um, the same sort of uh, 
kind of dystopian thinking that uh, is present when you're lonely is the same sort of thing that's alleviated with with laughter. So mm-hmm. hope everybody comes out and sees Jeffrey Gurian on on Wednesday night. Jeffrey, it's always a treat to see you. Thank you for coming in. It's so great to be here, Frank. I can't wait to see you again. I'll look forward <laughs> to that. Uh, check out Jeffrey Gurian's books on Amazon, G-U-R-I-A-N. And again, if this is your first time hearing Jeffrey, do watch that documentary, Who the F is Jeffrey Gurian? It's on YouTube, and you can go to ComedyMattersTV.com. A lot more to come to, including some really um, wild comments from Robert F. Kennedy Jr. yesterday. We'll tell you what he had to say. Keep asking questions. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. Happened to be home. We were. Uh, I was trying to get some work done for the show, and uh, I was uh, going through the papers. And my wife was rushing my my son out the door because he had his first swimming lesson. Maybe more on that later. And I was listening to the cats roundtable, and I'm sort of listening with half an ear because I listen while I'm. Um, uh, while I'm doing things, and it was a really interesting show. There's a, it's always an interesting show. It's one of the I think it is the largest nationally syndicated weekend radio show, news talk radio show that there is. But there's always interesting guests. And yesterday, I perked up because I heard that John Katzmatidis was interviewing Robert Kennedy Jr. And I'll tell you, you know, I've interviewed Robert Kennedy Jr., but I find him intriguing as a presidential candidate. And I'm trying to get him back on this show because I thought the interview that he did with Smirconish was very good. I thought Smirconish was very good, but I also thought Robert Kennedy Jr. was very good. I think his numbers in the polls are pretty interesting so far. And I wish, I've said that I wish Biden would debate his primary opponents, even though I realize it's completely uncustomary. And I wish Trump would debate his primary opponents, which is a little bit more customary. But as of now, it doesn't look like either of those things are going to be happening. But um, so I listened intently to this interview that John did with Robert Kennedy Jr., who's a Democratic candidate for president and who I'm hoping to have on. And they covered a lot of ground and it was really a fascinating interview, but it was really one of the first times that I've heard Robert Kennedy talk about his father's assassination and his uncle's assassination. 
And I want to play what he said for you and then get your reaction to it at 833-969-4447. That's 833-969-4447. So he's on talking about the uh, assassination of John F. Kennedy. And this is what he says regarding the Kennedy assassination. His is his uncle, and who was the president, obviously, and the CIA. Who do you think really killed your uncle? Well, I think there's overwhelming evidence that the CIA was involved in this murder. I think it's beyond a reasonable doubt at this point. People, you know, who question that, I'll tell you the book, you know, a book that, that probably distills the millions of documents of evidence, including confessions of people who were involved in the crime and the, and the 60-year cover-up. Uh, and the book that he, I mean, it, it was cut off there, but the book that he then cites is uh, James Douglas, JFK and the Unspeakable. And he says that uh, basically labeled the denials of the CIA's role as a 60-year cover-up. I know it's difficult to understand what Robert Kennedy Jr. says from time to time, but he said the evidence is overwhelming that the CIA was involved in the murder and in the cover-up. I'm curious what you think of that. Our phone number, special number for today, 833-969-4447. That's 833-969-4447. I have not read that book, JFK and the Unspeakable, but uh, I am familiar with its thesis, which holds the CIA responsible for that. I do think there's some possibility that the CIA was involved. Now, you listen to the—I think that there were elements within the government that was involved. I think there were also elements within organized crime. That were involved. But JFK's actual record in office, he seemed pretty willing to go along with the, for lack of a better description, the military industrial complex and with the CIA. Now, the reports are that he was preparing to go in a different direction had he lived, and perhaps that's one of the reasons why he didn't live. But if you listen to some of the things that he said at the time, he was very much in line with what he was saying. Here he is, September 1963. This is what he said. These people who say that uh, we ought to withdraw from Vietnam are wholly wrong, because if we withdrew from Vietnam, the communists would control Vietnam. Pretty soon, Thailand, Cambodia, Laos, Malaya would go, and all of Southeast Asia would be under the control of the communists and under the domination of the Chinese. And then India, Burma would be the next target. So I think we should stay. We should make it clear, as Ambassador Lodge is now making it clear, that while we want to help, we don't see a successful ending to this war unless the people will support it. And the people will not support the effort if uh, the government continues to follow the policy of the past two months. I hope that will be clear to the government should be. After all, they've been conducting this struggle for 10 years, and uh, I admire what the president has done. He's been counted out a number of times. I'm hopeful that he will come to see that uh, they have to reestablish their relationship. So what, what Kennedy says there is, these people who say we ought to withdraw from Vietnam 
are wholly wrong. So at least publicly, it's very possible that he had a very different, uh, a very different tact privately. But at least publicly, he was very hawkish in terms of dealing with the threat of communism. I think you saw that with the Bay of Pigs invasion in terms of uh, being in Vietnam specifically. I really give Robert F. Kennedy Jr. for talking about this because in my view, every presidential candidate should talk about this because there are still so many Kennedy assassination documents that are buried that we have not gotten to look at yet. There was a, a trove that was released that were released last week. Um, I made you an interview this week with Gerald Posner on this. He doesn't believe there was a conspiracy, but he has um, pointed out some of the interesting things that have come out in these newly released documents. I give Robert F. Kennedy Jr. for talking about this as a presidential candidate, but I also give him credit for talking about this as a Kennedy because you have a situation where his father was killed, his uncle was killed. And in my view, there's ample evidence to suggest in both cases that the official story, especially with JFK, but I think perhaps with RFK as well, the official story is not necessarily the correct one. And that's not just me saying this. Congress found that. The Congress Select Committee on Assassinations in the 1970s, when they opened this investigation, they found that John F. Kennedy, Robert F. Kennedy, and um, that both of them were killed as a result of a conspiracy. And RFK Jr. was talking about his father's death this morning. This is what he had to say. The best evidence suggests that my father was killed by Eugene Lancaster. Sirhan Sirhan fired his shots. He fired eight shots, two of them toward my father. One of them hit Paul Schrade, who was my father's friend and a UAW leader. The second shot he fired at my father hit the door jam behind my father and was later removed by the police. Sirhan was then pounced upon by six men and bent over the steam table, and his firing arm was directed away from my father. But Rayford Johnson said he had superhuman strength. They could not get the pistol away from him. So he emptied the barrel. He emptied the chamber. He fired six other shots. And all of those shots hit people. And what I was starting to say before, the what I, I said, I give Bobby Kennedy Jr. credit for talking about this because most of the Kennedys don't. The attitude of the Kennedy family I think pretty much all of them, has been they will not discuss either of these assassinations. So I give Robert F. Kennedy Jr. credit for uh, talking about both of these assassinations publicly, which uh, I and, you know, he has a very different view of his father's assassination than several of his siblings do. Our number, if you want to comment, 833-969-4447. That's 833-969-4447. I know some of you like to spell out the phone number, if that's you. Our phone number can be spelled out as Ted Wow Giggs. So you think about Ted Lasso, that's the mnemonic device, and you think, wow, that's such a good show. And if you, you think, oh, if Ted Lasso was a comedian that was p- performing, he would have gigs that would probably wow you. So you remember Ted Wow Giggs, 833-969-4447. This is the last clip I'll play you of uh, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. talking with John Katsimatidis on the Cats Roundtable Sunday morning as of uh, as of yesterday. There were 77 eyewitnesses. 
Sirhan was always in front of my father. My father, the autopsy by Thomas Noguchi shows, was killed by four shots that were hit that hit him from behind. They were all contact shots. The barrel of the gun was touching his skin or his clothes at the time the trigger was pulled. Those shots were almost certainly fired by the security guard who was holding his elbow at the time and directing him toward the ambush, towards Sirhan's ambush. That man is called Eugene Payne Caesar. He was an intelligence operative who worked at the Lockheed plant and the Boeing plant and had gotten the job as a security guard for my father three days earlier. He, he publicly made statements uh, that he hated the Kennedys. He particularly hated Robert Kennedy because he thought Robert Kennedy was going to turn the country over to the blacks. This was his statement. Um, he died two years ago. I was in communication with him at the time. Uh, asking to come over to the Philippines where he fled afterwards. And by the way, he was seen by 12 eyewitnesses with his gun out. He never denied it. He said that he pulled his gun to shoot at Sirhan. When my father fell, he must have known that he was being shot from behind because he turned around and pulled off Cesar's clip on tie, and then he fell backwards on top of Cesar. When Caesar got up, he was holding his gun, which was seen, as I say, by a dozen eyewitnesses. But he later, the gun was not confiscated by the LAPD. He later lied about what he did with the gun, and uh, and he he, lied, he changed his story repeatedly about why he got his, he had his gun out and who he was firing at. Look, I don't know what the truth is. With respect to either of these assassinations. And look, is it possible that both of them were killed by the one lone gunman? Maybe. Maybe. I tend to think it's unlikely, but it's possible. And look, whenever any of us lose a loved one, particularly at a young age, which Robert F. Kennedy Jr. had to deal with the loss of his father at a relatively young age, uh, we're always seeking some sort of an explanation to get through what happened and explain what happened and to place it in a larger picture. Is that some of what's going on in Robert Kennedy Jr.'s brain here? Maybe. I don't know. But uh, I was glad to hear John ask him about it because if I get Robert Kennedy back on this program, which I am trying to do, uh, that was on my list of subjects to uh, ask him about as well, as well as all the vaccine stuff that he's been probably better known for these days. But, um, you know, it is interesting. Jesse Ventura wrote a book. He he was friendly with Robert Kennedy Jr. for a time. I don't think they're necessarily on the same page anymore, but I, I don't want to speak for Jesse Ventura. And in that book, he projects the future with Robert F. Kennedy Jr. And it talks about running for president and vice president with Robert Kennedy Jr., And it has, if I'm remembering the book correctly, it's been almost 20 years since I read it, it has Robert F. Kennedy Jr. being killed. And Jesse Ventura is a big Kennedy assassination conspiracy theory. It has Robert F. Kennedy Jr. being killed to keep quiet the secrets that Robert F. Kennedy Jr. is trying to uncover about his father and his uncle's assassination. So part of me does wonder if... The there are certain forces still 
at play in the CIA and in the national security state that would prefer some of these observations that Robert Kennedy Jr. is making not to be publicly aired? And are they going to, as you know, you remember the old phrase from Chuck Schumer talking about the intelligence community of uh, warning Donald Trump. He said they have six ways from Sunday of getting back at you. Is he putting himself, I hope certainly not in danger of assassination, but is he putting himself in the crosshairs of the intelligence community by airing this out publicly on national radio? What do you think? 833-969-4447. That's 833-969-4447. Special number for today. Three open lines. We'll take your phone calls in just a moment. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Stranger to you, if you're hearing our program for the first time, this is The Other Side of Midnight with you for the next uh, two hours and change. And I'd love for you to be a part of the conversation at 833-969-4447. That's 833-969-4447. Talking about the rather interesting comments that were made by Democratic candidate for president Robert F. Kennedy Jr., Essentially saying the CIA was involved in his uncle's assassination and saying, well, I didn't hear him specifically pin blame on who was involved in his father's assassination. But he seemed to indicate that there were multiple shooters, which does not go with the official story of Sirhan Sirhan acting alone. Uh, so give me your thoughts on this, if you have any. 833-969-4447. That's 833-969-4447. John is in Brooklyn. John, I know you're a big fan of Robert F. Kennedy Jr., if memory serves. Yes, I am. Ha, ha, ha. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're, having Robert F. Kennedy Jr. as a candidate running for president is akin to having a creationist running to become president of the American Museum of Natural History. And here it is more worse, because God forbid if he took over, if he became president and was in charge of both, that meant he was in charge of both CDC and National Institutes of Health. I don't find him credible. I I mean, I I thought it was interesting. I, I, um, I'm glad Katz had an excellent discussion with him. But if I was Katz, I personally would have liked to have seen him gone after him about all of his anti-vax nonsense. Uh, I, I personally regard 
Kennedy as someone who has blood on his hands. He's responsible for the deaths of thousands of people who have listened to him and his guru, uh, disgraced British ex-doc Andrew Wakefield, for making these incredulous allegations about vaccine safety and by listening to them not getting vaccinated. And therefore, either they themselves die or they've seen loved ones die from diseases that could have been prevented, the deaths could have been prevented if if they were vaccinated. Well, John, uh, thank you. I uh, really do think, and if he comes, appreciate the call, and if he comes on this program, I'm going to ask him about this. I really do think um, the damage that he's done in sowing doubt, not just about the COVID vaccination, which, okay, it's a new vaccination, people aren't sure about it, most people get COVID and are fine, but in linking autism with uh, traditional childhood vaccinations, I think that is very damaging. And we, we did an interview recently with uh, a fella that was on the other side of that issue, and I thought he raised some very good points. And I am going to ask him about that if he comes on this program. So uh, so we'll see. Uh, but so far I have not had any I've, – I've put in the request with his campaign. So far I have not heard – anything uh anything back ralph is in new jersey hello ralph yeah ralph um, what's on your mind good morning to you, morning no. okay about cbd the reason why i will not be supporting this man is you know he takes a pass about the origin of the virus unlike Ram paul who is assiduously uh, pursuing this whole uh, situation regarding the China virus, okay? uh, but the vaccine, the vaccine, the vaccine. I mean, you know, crying out loud, the WHO is not looking into the origin of the virus either. Okay? Yeah. They Ra- say I'm into the virus, but what is the origin of this virus? Okay? Ralph, uh, and- thank you. I appreciate that. You know, it's funny, <clears throat> uh, and we'll get into this when he comes on. I view one of the greatest accomplishments of the Trump administration being the Operation Warp Speed and the development of these COVID vaccines. But because I think Trump is politically astute enough to know that there's a large segment of the Republican primary electorate that doesn't view the uh, development of these vaccines as an accomplishment, he rarely talks about it. I I think if I was listing the greatest accomplishments of the Trump administration, that would be in the top ten, maybe even in the top five. And he rarely talks about it at all. I'm wondering if that is something that will change for the uh, general election if he ends up in a rematch against uh, Jolton Joe Biden. Uh, 833-969-4447. Patricia is in Brooklyn. Hello, Patricia. Hey, Frank. Um, All I can say is, like, we don't really know. I think uh, if anybody's going to blame anybody for two assassinations, you could blame the mafia. You could blame Frank Sinatra. Uh, I just think at this this point in our present time, it's inappropriate for RFK Jr. to be bringing this up now. I well, I mean, in fairness, Patricia, in, fa- in fairness, Wait, he was asked. Finish, Frank. I'm not done. All right. For, but, but, but I just want to point out, Patricia, he I was asked about it. He was asked about it. I think it's unseemly and inappropriate. He, but when when he's asked the question, when he's asked the question, what should he do? 
what do you mean, what should he do? Well, so uh, John asked them a question. What do you think about your father's, uh, excuse me, your uncle's assassination and the possible role of, uh, and what happened there? And if he's asked a question like that in an interview, how would you have him respond? Well, I don't think there's anything to do. It's like 60 years ago. What's to do? Well, thank you, uh, Patricia. I, I, for one, and this may be naive on my part, or some of you may say it's a situation of, of, um, inappropriately handling resources. I would love to see the investigation reopened. I don't believe we've ever gotten a conclusive answer as to what happened to the Kennedy assassination, the John F. Kennedy assassination. And I don't believe the Warren Commission report is accurate. I think the single bullet theory is a load of bupkis. And I think the fact that the government is still working so hard to keep so many of the documents relative to this from being unearthed. To me, I find that very damning. Now, I don't think that there's a document locked in a drawer somewhere that says, oh, these are the real killers of John F. Kennedy. I don't think that at all. But I just think it's interesting that the government is trying so hard to cover up something by refusing to allow these documents uh, to come out. But whatever, that's me. 833-969-4447 if you want to comment. That's Ted Wow Gigs. 833-969-4447. Four open lines if you want to comment. Now, um, I know there are... We have a lot of different people that we're blessed to have as listeners of this show. There's a lot of people that like hearing me share sort of... um, personal stories to put on my rack hand tours hat of things that I'm doing in my life and what's going on. And there's a lot of people that don't. Well, if you are in the former category, meaning you enjoy personal stories and uh, my trials and tribulations, raise the volume right now, because uh, this is, this is, I'm going to tell you about this day that I had on Friday, which was something or more really. And the day that my wife had, which was quite challenging. If you're one of those people that tunes out whenever you hear me talking about my son Carmine or my wife or whatever, you are being warned. Now is a good, as good an opportunity as any to do something else. But don't say I didn't warn you. All right. What a day Friday was. So we stuck around here to have our meeting. It went well. Best part about that meeting, Matt Blaze, what was the best part about that meeting? When it ended? Well, yes, that it was short. It was short. It was See, a nice, I, short I, I, meeting. I had it. Right, exactly. There. Well, yeah, we were all, I think we were all thinking the same thing. Kenneth, you would concur with that? Oh, yeah. Yeah, nice, short meeting. You know, anybody could bring up whatever they wanted, and then everybody's issues were addressed, and then everybody leaves. Right? There you go. Start the weekend. Beautiful. That's how these meetings should go. So um, we, we stuck around here, had this meeting. And now on Fridays, my wife does these uh, television hits for different uh, different uh, markets around the country. And she does a great job, but she does it from her office. So usually I'll stay up on Friday morning to, uh, you know, entertain my son and look after him and play with him and stuff, uh, give him food, whatever else, while my wife prepares for these television hits. You know, she gets made up and she puts on a nice blouse and all sorts of things. And then if she needs me to stay with him 
while she's doing the TV hits, I'll do that as well. So I'm staying with them. We're playing. We're we're playing ping pong. We're playing with the ball. I actually put on Instagram a video of the two of us hanging out playing ping pong. Um, it's on my Instagram at Morano Vision. That's M O R A N O Vision. You can see the live video that I did on Friday. Uh, basically, it's just. Carmine um, going after a ping pong ball. That's basically the whole video. So if you're into it, you can watch it there. So my wife comes down and uh, she said, all right, you know, she knows I'm tired, right? I have not been to sleep in, let's say it's about quarter to eight, right? So I woke up at 1.30 the previous afternoon. So I've not been to sleep in roughly, what is that, 19 hours? Uh, let's say nine, eight, Let's say it's 18 hours. I've been up for 18 hours straight, exhausted, just finished the show. She knows that I want to go to sleep. She says, all right, honey, you can go to sleep. I said, are you sure you don't need me to stay with Carmine while you do your TV hits? She says, no, 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 I'm going to give him his bottle, and then we're going to put on some Baby Einstein for him on television, which he really enjoys. We'll talk about that later maybe. And he sits there, and he drinks his bottle. Maybe he'll have some Cheerios. And he watches Baby Einstein. Supposed to be educational, you know. And he has learned from that. He's learned shapes. He's learned colors. He's learned numbers. It's really, it's really an interesting program. So, uh, okay. And and he said, I'm going to put him down for a nap in a little while. And then his babysitter Lorraine is going to be here. You're fine. Go to sleep. Okay. So I go to I go to my bed, and I'm just starting to drift off into dreamland because it takes a little while. When you put this amount of effort and energy into a radio program, and I'm, I'm being sincere and enthusiasm, quite frankly, it takes a little bit of a, a, a little while to decompress, to come down. Because basically you go from running a marathon, it's not like you flip a script or flip a switch and then all of a sudden you stop and you're, and you're con on the SS Botany Bay. No, you, you got to kind of come down. So I'm in, I'm in bed, I'm kind of meditating, eyes are closed, I'm... I'm answering my last emails, flicking the phone into Do Not Disturb, and I'm decompressing. And I'm just about to slip off into dreamland. Not quite asleep, but almost, almost, almost asleep. Got the uh, white noise machine going, which I've become a convert to to drown out the constant construction noise that I'm surrounded by, which is keeping me awake. Okay, drifting off into sleep. And then I hear... Downstairs, now that my door is closed, I hear downstairs a loud thud. Now, I don't know what it is. I said, please, tell me Carmine just threw something. Let that be all that is. Let him just have thrown a toy or something. Let this not be anything. Okay. So, I, then the next thing I hear after this loud thud, is him crying. And I said, oh boy, okay, not good. Not good. And he's crying loudly. So I run downstairs now, uh, now fully awake once again. Now it's about 8 o'clock, 8.15 in the morning. Run down in my pajamas. He's crying. So I go over to him, his face is all red, and he's uncomfortable. He's crying. My wife was in the bathroom for 90 seconds, right? She left him on the sofa for 90 seconds, which we've done before, and he's been fine. She left him on the sofa for 90 seconds, and she sees that he's crying. And she says, you know, I'm sorry, I don't know what happened. He must have fallen. Okay, we don't know where he fell. Neither of us were in the room when he fell. So she picks him up, and we're both kind of comforting him. 
and we're standing in the in our family room. She's holding it. Now, keep in mind, he just had a big bottle of milk. She's holding him. He's crying. Carmine starts projectile vomiting milk all over the place, like the exorcist. I mean, really like the exorcist. It comes projectile vomiting all over. He vomits all over everything, all over his books, all over his clothes, all over his wife. Uh, he missed me somehow, uh, which I appreciated. It's everywhere, everywhere, all over our ottoman. We have now a living room covered in what looks like cottage cheese. It was totally disgusting. And then he does it again 40 seconds later. Now we're both terrified, right, because neither of us saw him fall. So we both think that maybe this is an indication of some sort of a concussion or something. And I am trying to look up articles about what that means, vomiting after a toddler falls. And basically, there's a lot of conflicting information, but apparently online, it looks like a pretty common thing, actually. It looks like about at least 10% of, of toddlers will vomit after, after a fall. And again, we don't know where he fell. I'm looking at his head. He's got no bump. He's not bleeding anywhere. And my wife says, call his pediatrician. Now, I want you to understand, I am still, I'm half stun God, right? I am just a little out of it right now. Moving a little slow because I haven't slept. Just call his pediatrician. Now, keep in mind, I have this new phone. Apparently, not all my phone numbers have transferred over. So I'm looking for this pediatrician's phone number. And uh, she said, why aren't you calling? I said, I don't see the number in here. I guess it didn't transfer over. All right. And now you can imagine how that went over. She's now uh, covered in vomit, holding a baby covered in vomit, who's crying and wanting to know if we should take him to the hospital, and I don't have the pediatrician's phone number. I'll let you, I'll leave that portion of our interaction out of this discussion. So she says, get my phone. I get her phone. Now, meanwhile, I'm trying to read all these articles about what this means, what this situation means. So finally, I get the pediatrician on the phone, and the guy is as, he's so long-winded. He doesn't seem too concerned but he says, look, you know, I'd rather send 100 healthy babies to the ER and have nothing be wrong than have something be wrong and I didn't send you. So it's early now. Why don't you go there? They'll probably see you pretty quickly. You probably won't have to wait long. Go there, even though it's probably long. And then he's going on and on telling me about this Billy Joel concert that he's going to. Now, not only is that the opposite of what I want to be hearing at that moment, but my wife is desperately standing by the phone, still covered in vomit, waiting for answers. And I, uh, I and he's going on and on. So he doesn't seem fun. He says he's probably going to be fine, but just go anyway. All right. So I said, all right, let me I work. I'm cleaning up all this vomit. It's disgusting. I said, let me uh, take him to the hospital and you can go and do your TV hit. She says, no, I want to come. So I said, all right, I'll get him dressed and I'll entertain him and you go do your TV hit and we'll leave when you're when you're done. So I get him dressed and put his jacket on. He's sitting on the couch for a little while. He's having a snack. He's acting as normal as can be. So we've got about 15 minutes. She says, call the babysitter, tell the babysitter not to come because we're going to the hospital. Okay. so she goes, my, my wife goes and does her TV hits and Carmine is acting perfectly normal. He's eating. He's drinking, he's goofing around, he's smiling. He, 
we're playing outside while we're waiting for Rachel. So Rachel comes out after she finishes her TV hit, which she did in a vomit-covered blouse, by the way. But I think, it, I don't know that the TV audience was the wiser. And um, she's looking at him running around. And look, he doesn't have any of the symptoms of a concussion. His eye, pupils are not dilated. His eyes are not dilated. He's not lethargic. He's got just a ton of energy, ton of energy. Running around, he's smiling, he's happy, he's laughing. And she said, "Do you? Th- I mean, what do you think? Should we take him to the hospital or not? I said, I don't know. She says, well, I mean, my concern is he's supposed to nap in 40 minutes anyway. And she says, uh, if we go to the hospital, they're going to keep us waiting there for two hours and just observe him, which is what our pediatrician said they would do. Why don't we observe him? And if we see anything is wrong with him, then we'll take him. But it seems like an unnecessary an unnecessary situation for him to be uncomfortable waiting around the hospital when he looks like he's perfectly normal, not even a bump on the head. So that's what we agreed to do. We watch him for the rest of the day, and then his babysitter does come, and she watches him the rest of the day. He's perfectly normal. Nothing, not out of sorts at all. By the way, they say the other thing you should look for is if there's any vomiting or anything. So no vomiting, no dizziness, no lethargy, nothing. Seems just fine the whole rest of the day. So we kind of figure situation is over. Got it. That's that's Friday. Oh, by the way, Friday also involved my wife's Instagram being hacked. Um, so if you get something from her that's it's trying to sell you clothes or foreign exchange trading advice that is not her, do not click anything from her. And I people have been – and so because she got hacked on Friday – she got a hundred phone calls from people. Hey, is this you? Yes, of course that's me. I'm now in the foreign exchange currency business. Is this you trying to sell clothes? Yes. I don't even say hello. I didn't even say your name. I'm just sending you a link to buy clothes. That's me. So uh, if you get anything from her, if you follow her on Instagram, it's not her. She has no control over that Instagram account right now. Anyway, so her Instagram gets hacked. She's Our whole house smells like vomit. And by the way, she goes to do the laundry to clean some of her vomit-covered clothes and Carmine's vomit-covered clothes. And our dryer breaks. Our dryer is broken, and she can't find the warranty, and she's on hold with Costco. And um, she's trying to get Carmine's blood results from when he went to give blood a couple of weeks ago for this lead test. They wouldn't uh, upload the results to the portal that she has for Quest Diagnostic because she was using the name Carmine Morano instead of Carmine William Morano. So that she couldn't get the results. She's on phone with that person for an hour. She's on phone with the Costco people over the dryer for an hour. She, it's just one of those days where oh, nothing is going well. Nothing is going well, except for, thank God, the fact that uh, Carmine, um, you know, d- w- didn't get hurt. So we go through the rest of the day. And then Saturday, brand new day. We're thinking we'll start anew. Everything will go well. And it's my goddaughter's communion. So we're driving an hour and a half out to Westchester. We put on a great little outfit for Carmine. We're driving. I get up early with him. I make him a a nice, hearty breakfast of scrambled eggs. And um, he eats it. He's in great mood. He's got a nice outfit on. Looks very handsome. Go in the car. We're in the car about 20 minutes, 25 minutes. And we hear a, uh, like a, like a gagging. Right, so we turn around. This is about 24 hours after this uh, fall that happened. We 
turn around and he's vomiting in the car on the way to Westchester. And he's vomiting scrambled eggs all over the place, all over the place. Now, he it looked to me like he didn't eat a lot of eggs, but he ate a lot of eggs because our car and his car seat is now covered with vomit that looks exactly like scrambled eggs. So we take him out of his car seat, clean him off, change his outfit into a backup outfit. And now we're wondering again, well, is this tied to that fall? Should we take him to the hospital? So I said, yeah, I guess we should. So we start driving to the hospital. And same situation. He's perfectly normal. And ultimately, we decide that um, that th- that there's nothing wrong with him, that he might have just gotten car sick or drank the milk that was in the car with him too aggressively. And we basically drove for another hour in a car that reeked of vomit, which was pretty disgusting. It made us both nauseous. But um, thankfully, he was okay. But that was our adventures in parenting for Friday and Saturday. A lot of lot of vomit and uh, a lot of concern. But ultimately, thank goodness, he's doing just, just fine. And Sunday was free of incident, totally. So that's where we are. All right. 833-969-4447 is our phone number. 833-969-4447. Three open lines if you want to comment on the uh, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. situation or anything else that we are, we're, we're talking about. I appreciated having Jeffrey Gurry in here. I am, I'm going to try and go see that show of his on, uh, on Wednesday. It sounds like a lot of fun. I have to see what, what's going on at home because uh, it is tough for me to leave early, but... We'll see. All right. Nicholas is in New Jersey. Hello there, Nicholas. Hi. How you doing? I'm well. Thanks, Nicholas. I'm glad your son's feeling better. Thank you. Me too. But that was quite a weekend. Yes. Yes, it was. And believe it or not, uh, we uh, we had a busy weekend. I didn't even get to all the things we did on Sunday. Uh, but, but yeah, that's true. We did have a busy weekend. Um. My first comment is about the song you played, Hello Stranger. Yeah. It's sung by Barbara Lewis. Well, I, the version we played was by uh, Yvonne Elliman. Really? It sounds too much like the original. Now, now Matt Blaze, you want to weigh in on this? Nicholas is questioning your song credibility. According to what we have in our system, it is by Yvonne Elliman. Well, he sure showed you, you, Nicholas. I bet you that's a mistake. I bet you that's a mistake because I was a, I was on radio for over thirty years. I was a disc jockey, so that sure sounded like Barbara Lewis. How many years are you on the radio, radio, Matt Blaze? Um, not that many, but I will compare. And who is it, Barbara Lewis? I'll I will look them up together, and we'll compare and see. And then, what does Nicholas get if he if he proves you wrong here? The satisfaction that he proved me wrong. I mean, you know how many times? <laughs> you know how many times I've gone through this as a DJ? Like DJing parties when people come up to me and think they they want a song that I don't have and they think because I'm a DJ I should have every song ever known to mankind and this look I can only go by what is said in our system and it says it's this is the version by Yvonne Elliman now if the system is wrong I can't help that but most likely I don't know I'll find out but that's what it says because uh, I can. I consider myself an expert as far as 60s, 70s, and 80s music. That was my specialty. Right. All right. We'll have to check it out and see. Uh... There you have it, Nicholas. Okay, my... Any other song corrections second... while you're here? 
No, no, no. My okay. second point was about the Kennedy assassination. Okay, well, I mean, that's a uh, that's a, quite a departure from Barbara Lewis, but go ahead, have at it. Okay, um, that previous call was a real idiot, that woman, you know, 60 years. I don't care if it was 100 years. The American people has the right to know what actually happened. And uh, I did my own research. I was a little kid when that happened, so I, it intrigued me. I read a lot of books, watched the film footage over and over again, and there's no doubt in my mind the CIA killed Kennedy, and it was two gunmen. Well, um, which Kennedy, Robert or John? Not talking about JFK. John, okay. Um, and and wh- why do you think they did? I mean, what um, what what do you think the motivation was? Maybe they didn't like the direction he was going to take the country. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because I could see, and thank you for the call, Nicholas. And uh, I don't want to call anybody an idiot just because someone has a different point of view than we might have. They're not an idiot. They disagree. But um, uh, so I don't I don't like to call people idiots in general. The it's very possible. I do think that there's a strong possibility. And this is my personal belief that both Martin Luther King Jr. and Robert F. Kennedy Sr. were killed because of their opposition to the Vietnam War. Unlike John F. Kennedy in the clip that I just played you where he was very hawkish on Vietnam Martin Luther King and Robert Kennedy, two of the most popular left-leaning personalities in the entire country at the time, were incredibly outspoken about the need for peace. And I do think that played a role in their demise, Uh, 100%. Absolutely. All right. Uh, 833-969-4447. If you have any other songs uh, that you want to correct, 833-969-4447. You want to hear the comparison? Yeah, let's hear them. Okay. All right, so here is the Barbara Lewis version. Who is the person that Nick claimed was we were playing? Correct. Right, this is different. Right, you can tell. Yeah, all right, so there's Barbara Lewis. Okay, got it. And here is the Yvonne Elliman version. It's very different. I mean, it's similar, but similar, yeah, but different. So your your reputation is secure for now. Yeah. Well, I feel like Nicholas should be taken down a notch somehow. What? What? We, <laughs> yeah. You know, what is his recourse? I don't know. Yeah. No. What? What? What does he suffer with now? For thirty years of radio yeah, DJ exactly. experience. Exactly. Boy, goes to show you they don't teach you everything in radio DJ school. Sorry, Nick. Sorry. Well, that's no reflection on uh, Nick's analysis of the Kennedy assassination at all. All right, 833-969-4447. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Three open lines straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano.
If you ever want to know what kind of music we're playing on this radio program, we do try to post the bumper music selections after the show uh, in our Facebook group. Uh, just search M-O-R-A-N-O Radio Fans and Haters. That's M-O-R-A-N-O Radio Fans and Haters. So um, I had been telling you how over the last year and a half or so I've really been enjoying these A and E biographies. I love all the A and E biographies, but because I've always been particularly interested in the world of professional wrestling, I enjoy the WWE Legends series. And season one was very interesting. They did Stone Cold Steve Austin, uh, Shawn Michaels, Mick Foley. Really uh, uh, interesting people. Season two was very interesting. They did Kurt Angle, Lex Luger, um, and uh, Bill Goldberg. And look, as t- I watched wrestling up until, religiously, up until about 21, 22 years ago, right? So that's kind of my era. So each season, there's more and more wrestlers that I didn't necessarily follow. So I don't watch the wrestlers that I'm not interested in. I watch the ones that I'm, uh, even if I've heard of them, like I, the first season, the only one that I was not interested in was Booker T. I don't really care about Booker T. And nothing against Booker T. It's fine. But I, I was interested in everybody but one. Season two, I was interested in everybody except three or four people. Right? Okay. So I started uh, these, these shows uh, debuted maybe two months ago. I started late Saturday night. Because my wife is on a different schedule and she did a lot of driving back and forth to Westchester on Saturday and she was exhausted. So she went to bed pretty, pretty quickly. So I stayed up and I watched the first episode of season three of this A&E WWE Legends series. And I, I thought it was very interesting. And in a moment... I'm going to give you my review of the first episode, and I'll give I'll tell you if it's even worth checking out. But first, let me say hello to Robert in New Jersey. Robert, we got about a minute here. It's all yours. Hey, hey, Frank. Uh, three quick things. First, um, I've, I've always thought that the mafia killed John F. Kennedy and Robert F. Kennedy, based based upon you know what was happening, and uh, you know they were trying to get into their business. But uh, I'm not sure if that's ever been proven. That's just my thought on that. The second thought is. It's scrambled eggs, not scrambled eggs. Oh, scrambled. Okay. Yes, yes. And the third point, I played the $1,000 Minute last month. It was awesome, and I love the magnet. But I think a really cool promo would be a a bumper sticker, a magnet bumper sticker on the back of your car that says, I played the $1,000 Minute, dot, 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 and lost. Or dot, 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 and one. You know, or Robert. Just, I played the $1,000 minute. That's yeah. a great suggestion. Uh, Kenneth, can we run that up the flagpole to promotions? Uh, because, look, if they're willing to get a magnet for the refrigerator, I don't see why they wouldn't get a, a magnet, a magnetic bumper sticker. That's a great idea, and it helps us a lot. Robert, thank you. We'll give, it, we'll give you a percentage sure, of everything we make on that magnet. Thank you. Better luck next time in terms of playing. We had a good $1,000 minute today. I uh, went through the questions this morning. There's some current events in there. There's some history. There's some... Uh, some sports, there's some pop culture, got some good stuff. All right, in a moment, I will bring you commendations. 
my review of the new season of the A&E WWE Legends and some thoughts on the Kentucky Derby and all these horses that died. Your influence counts. Use it. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. Our phone number for today, special number, 833-969-4447. That's 833-969-4447. The number is spelled out to be Ted Wow Gigs. No more guests for the rest of the show. So whatever's on your mind, now's the time to get it off your chest. Do you know what I... We're going to do commendations in just a moment. Do you know what I do in my spare time, I answer email. Do you know what I do when I'm working? I answer email. Do you know what I do for fun? I answer email. My entire day is is trying to catch up with the snowball of email that people send me. If you want to add to that volume of email, you can do so. Frank.Morano at RedAppleAudioNetworks.com. That's Frank.Morano at RedAppleAudioNetworks.com. So, but I try to be polite with pretty much everybody, right, that, um, that writes to me. And one of the things that I've pointed out is I don't know why. People need to send me one email for every article. Why do I need 10 emails for 10 articles? Why not send me one email and then in the body of the email say, hey, Frank, here's an article on vaccines. Here's an article on Star Trek. Here's an article on. uh, Oh, also, let me tell you, and if Curtis Lee was listening, I hope he, he hears this as well. If something is in a paper that I read every day, you don't need to send it to me. So if it's in the New York Post, the New York Times, or, uh, you know, Politico New York, or, um, you know, what else do I read? Whatever, you know, any of the papers that I read on television, you don't need to send If it's If it's from an obscure publication that I would not have seen otherwise but for you sending it to me, by all means, send it over to me. Absolutely, 100%. But anyway... Um, because I do laugh. Curtis now not not only emails me articles, he text messages me articles, and I say, "Oh boy, Curtis, from the New York Post, I wouldn't have thought to read that." My goodness. All right, but anyway, um, I I actually do get a lot of great story ideas from the articles that people send, so please do keep sending them. But you could send one email with all your stories in there, so. I write back to this one guy that's one of the worst offenders, this fellow named Robert, who's one of the worst offenders in terms of sending 30 emails a day with 30 different articles. And I I thought that by passively aggressively complaining about this on the air the other day that he would kind of get the message and maybe stop doing it. And I said, Robert, 
again, because I've asked them this before, why send me a bunch of different articles instead of one email with all your articles? Thanks. And he responds, and I'm just getting to this now. So I don't. So he says, thank you, Frank. I will try to comply and link them together. Okay, it's nice. I'm thinking we're making progress. And then this is the next sentence. Hope to hear you a little bit, but I have to get to the internist at 11.30 a.m. since my shingles may be worsening. Have a good show. Best regards, Bob. Now, first of all, I know shingles is very tough and people have a very difficult time with it and it's very painful. So I'm wishing this fellow Bob the, the best, Bob in uh, Maryland. And because I've known people that have had shingles and they complain about it being one of the most painful things anybody goes through. So I wouldn't wish that on anybody. But there's a part of me that thinks, what? I'm investing all this time reading this guy's emails and he's likely not even listening because of his health condition. I want to use that time to invest on the part of listeners. So what I'd like you to do when you email me from now on is just specify whether you're going to be listening to the show that day or not. And if you're going to be listening, I will give that email the attention that it deserves. If you know you're not going to be listening, say, Frank, I don't listen to you. I am not listening to you today, the hours or whatever. So I'm not going to read your email. If you say, well, I'm going to try to listen. Maybe I'll hear a portion of the show. What I don't hear, I'll catch on the podcast. Okay, I can deal with that. Just be honest with whatever your listening habits are. Because here I've been thinking this guy is listening to this show Talmudically and he's busy going to bed to prepare for his shingles appointment. And again, he's got his priorities fine. But so do I have mine. All right. Uh, 833-969-4447. Commendations in a moment. Pamela is in New Jersey. Hello there, Pamela. Good morning. morning. Um, I I want to uh, send my appreciation to John Testamentides because I dropped everything when he boldly asked that question. Me too. And, you yeah. know, I know I know he's friendly with him, so it came from a, 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 an interesting place. So RFK was um, he's a renegade in his family, and he's willing to talk about it, but nobody wants to listen to him about it. And I just dropped everything because people don't understand something. That those of us who lived through that era, I mean, I was really, I was nothing but a toddler, but it, 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 it's right up there with UFOs. It's right up there. And it's also like the dark net of the internet. If uh, the secrets of that are unlocked, it will, it's affecting us to this day. And um, the fact that he gave such detail, I have never heard such detail uh, of the, uh, his father's incident. And I think it's very important, and his opinion is important. And I know the Kennedys have taken a um, oath not to talk about it. And um, you know, Jackie actually left the country; she was afraid. And um, so I think it was—it's very, very important, and it um, is affecting us to this day. Well, I agree with you, Pamela. Thank you very much for your comments there. I uh, completely agree with you. And uh, I am looking forward to having Robert Kennedy on this program. You know, we had one listener, very nice guy, um, who actually is friendly with Robert Kennedy, and he gave me his mobile phone number. Now, I already had a request in for his campaign, but he said, no, you know, reach out to Bobby directly and maybe that'll do it. So I, I'm always hesitant to if if there's an uh, if there's a procedure in place, 
I'm always hesitant to go around that procedure. But I think if I don't get a, a date from his campaign today of a date that he can come on the show, then I'm just going to reach out to him directly with this number that I have procured. Thanks to that gentleman who uh, got that for me. Thank you. All right. So before we go to commendations, I watched episode one, season three of the a biography WWE Legends series. Are you uh, caught up on this, Matt Blaze? I know you're a wrestling fan. You didn't watch any of them. No, I haven't seen any of them. I oh, no, okay. I watched the pay-per-view this weekend. was not very impressed. Really? Okay, well, then, good. I'm glad I didn't Just see so any know. of it. Thank you. Yeah, you didn't miss any. Um, but anyway, I, um, I really like these. I loved... Roddy Piper. I love. I'm I'm talking about the episodes. This is not a reflection of my view of these as people. I like these guys too, but I thought Stone Cold Steve Austin was very interesting. I thought Roddy Piper was interesting. I thought Shawn Michaels was very interesting. I thought Lex Luger was very interesting. I thought Kurt Angle was very interesting. Bill Bill Goldberg was very interesting. Ultimate Warrior, even very interesting. All very interesting, well done documentaries. Macho Man Randy Savage, very interesting. But um, so I watched the first episode of season three, and it deals with not a person, but an entity. Now, they've done this before. They did this in season two by doing a documentary about WrestleMania one, the first WrestleMania. And I'll be honest, that didn't do it for me, basically because it was stuff that I already knew. I like to watch a documentary, and I'm not just talking about wrestling here, but anything, where... Even if I know a great deal about the subject, I like to feel as if I'm learning something. That's why I really like Ken Burns. I knew when I was younger uh, much more about baseball history than I do now. I still know a lot about baseball history, much more about baseball history than modern-day baseball. But I watched that Ken Burns documentary on baseball. I thought it was incredible. Unbelievable. Same thing with his documentary on the Roosevelts. I thought I knew everything about Theodore Roosevelt and at least a little bit about Franklin Roosevelt. I watched that documentary. I realized I knew absolutely nothing about Theodore Roosevelt. Those those are my kind of documentaries. I didn't even want to watch the OJ 30 for 30 documentary because I remember the OJ case. And I I paid attention to the news at the time. I said, I know everything about that OJ case. I don't even need to watch this. But then... They, it got nominated for Best Documentary, so I said, all right, I may as well watch it. Lo and behold, that documentary on OJ is phenomenal. I mean, it's amazing. It's maybe the best documentary series I've ever seen. So uh, though the, the point is, I like a documentary where even if I'm familiar with the subject, I learn something. That wasn't the case with WrestleMania, which was one of the season two documentaries. It was just repeating stuff I already knew. It looked like a way to fill time, basically. Season three of the A&E WWE Legend Series focuses on a wrestling stable, probably one of the most impactful in history. The wrestling stable that they choose to focus on is the New World Order, the NWO. Now, if you're not a wrestling fan, bear with me. What happened was this. You have two rival wrestling companies going at it in the Monday Night Wars. WWF was dominant at the time. WCW starting to make some moves. They've acquired a lot of uh, wrestlers from the WWF. People like the Macho Man Randy Savage. People like Hulk Hogan. They've cultivated a lot of their own talent from the vintage WCW days. Sting, 
uh, Rick Flair, I believe, was there at the time. They had um, people like Lex Luger back in their in their organization. They were doing re- very well. They were doing. They, you could tell they were starting to move in the right direction. So at in the in the heyday of the Monday Night Wars, and I, they're called the Monday Night Wars because both of the marquee shows were on Monday night. Monday Night Raw for WWF and Monday Nitro for T, uh, for WCW, which was owned by billionaire Ted Turner. And so there's a wrestler in the WWF known as Razor Ramon. Now, he wrestles at Madison Square Garden. The very next day, Razor Ramon, real name Scott Hall, comes out on WCW television. Whoa. Whoa. Now, imagine this as a wrestling fan. This is when the Internet was in its nascent form. This would be the equivalent of you see um, Sean Hannity on the Fox News channel on Monday, and then on Tuesday you see him on CNN, okay, which we've seen before. But what we saw with Scott Hall is he acted like he was still working for the WWF. Then. The next week, the wrestler Diesel, real name Kevin Nash, he comes out. And these guys say they're taking over all WCW. Nobody had ever seen anything like this. This is unprecedented. It was a big deal. And it led to WCW beating WWF in the ratings 83 weeks in a row. It's one of the most successful angles of all time. But the coup de grace of this was at uh, Back to the Beach, WCW's marquee name, their hero, one of the best-known names in the history of wrestling, Hulk Hogan, basically turns heel. The guy that had been telling children, uh, the guy that had been visiting Make-A-Wish kids, fighting for America and the American way, and saying to uh, telling everybody to pray, and uh, take your vitamins and train and work hard. Um, and you got to fight for your rights and fight for what's right. He announces, he turns on the good guys and does what they call a heel turn. Turns on WCW, joins Hall and Nash, the outsiders, the NWO. And basically says, you know, when I was saying all that, say your prayers, take your vitamins. I was just doing it for the money. And he basically sells out in one of the most famous and most successful heel turns in history. I mean, think of the risk that Hogan was taking. And I give him a lot of credit for this. Hogan had a movie career. He had a career as a TV actor. He had a career as a pitch man endorsing all sorts of products, right guard, sports stick, and a bunch of other things. And he was a very well-known character. He'd wrestled nothing but main events for 12 years, made millions, had all sorts of other ancillary opportunities, and he chooses... To go from the Incredible Hulk Hogan or the Immortal Hulk Hogan to Hollywood Hogan. Now, he's dressed all in black. He comes out not to some patriotic song. He comes out to uh, basically Jimi Hendrix, rock, dressed all in black. He's even got a beard dyed black now. No doubt about it that this guy is a bad guy. This is a typical Hollywood Hogan promo in the NWO days. The whole world is a stage now. Man, these look good up there. We're styling, man. We don't have to sneak around anymore. We don't have to hide in the shadows. The NWO, 
Way to go, guys. We are the champions of the world. We've got the NWO belt. <laughs> We left the giant land, and now the whole WCW is going to fall at our feet. We hit a home run. I beat that big, nasty giant to the WCW belt and turned it into our belt, you know? The NWO belt, he was crying. And then a couple days later, I beat the so-called dirtiest player in the game. <laughs> he was crying, too. The WCW, the world crybaby wrestlers, doesn't work anymore. In war games with the WCW's finest, the so-called establishment of the WCW. In the cage with us, brother, Sting will be stung. So that was a typical Hollywood Hogan promo. So I watched the first episode, and it's all about the history of the NWO. And I enjoyed it, uh, mostly because I remember the NWO and I followed it closely. And I enjoyed seeing a lot of these clips. I enjoyed hearing the interviews with people like Eric Bischoff and Hulk Hogan and Kevin Nash. Scott Hall passed away, but they have some archival footage of interviews that he'd done. And it was interesting. But I'll be honest with you, my problem with this was the same as my problem with the WrestleMania episode, which is that I really didn't learn anything new. I, I rem- They played a lot of clips that I remembered and was happy to hear. I was happy to hear the regret that Hogan, Bischoff, and others have about some of the poorly conceived angles after this bit went on a little bit too long. I was glad they weren't saying the finger poke of doom was the most brilliant thing they've ever done, and I was glad to hear them taking some ownership of that. But by and large, I learned really nothing. And again, it doesn't mean you shouldn't see it. If you're a wrestling fan from the 90s, I think you'd be into it because you probably remember that NWO era. But this is the kind this is one of the episodes. Like I watched that Mick Foley documentary with my wife. And she was into it even though she doesn't like wrestling. The Roddy Piper thing, the documentary same thing. Andre the Giant, same thing. Bruno San Martino, not that that was A&E, but that was on the WWE network, same thing. I can't see people enjoying this unless they're a 1990s wrestling fan. I would even say that if you're a wrestling fan today, I don't think you'd be into it. If you, unless you remember the NWO in the 90s and you lived through it and you enjoy seeing it, I don't think you're going to be into it. So my, my view is I'm going to watch some of the other episodes from this season because they have some other people that I'm interested in seeing. But my view is if you are into wrestling from the 90s, you'll like it but not love it. I don't think you're going to learn anything from it. And if you're not, then I would definitely skip it. Absolutely skip it. I kind of think that maybe A&E, they started out, I think they've watered down their product a little bit. I think they started out telling very interesting stories about very interesting people in a manner that was produced very well. And I think it's kind of, uh, they're just looking to milk this for every click that they can get, every viewer that they can convincing every possible wrestling fan to watch as many of these as they could. And there's nothing wrong with that. Look, we're all in the business of attracting ears and eyes. Eh, But I definitely don't think this is as good as what we were seeing in the first season. All right. Uh, I went awfully long here. uh, So we're going to do commendations next. Then I want to talk about all these horses dying 
in the advent in the um in the run-up to the Kentucky Derby. What does that mean? Why are they dying? We'll get into that. We'll take your calls. Our special phone numbers for today, 833-969-4447. That's 833-969-4447. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Uh, we'll continue with your call shortly at 833-969-4447. But for now, for all the criticism out there, for all the negativity, there are some people, some places, some entities that deserve a bit of a pat on the back. And that's what we do in terms of highlighting. The Other Side of Midnight presents... I must first begin, as I always do, by uh, commending Mage, the winner of the Kentucky Derby. I did not watch the Kentucky Derby, and we're going to get into a horse racing discussion um, in a little bit. But this was a 15-to-1 long shot that crossed the finish line to win the Kentucky Derby, beating all of the favorites. And... um, it's not an easy thing to win the Kentucky Derby, and I'm giving the horse credit here. So, Mage, well done. I do commend you. I want to commend the scientists at Tel Aviv University in, e- in Israel. They have made a major breakthrough in terms of developing a drug that has shown significant potential to treat ovarian cancer, achieving an 80% survival rate. In animal trials, now we're still a long way away from this being able to be used to save humans, human lives, but this is incredibly promising. And I've known people that have died from ovarian cancer, and I've known people that have lost loved ones to ovarian cancer. And uh, I think this is some of the best news on the ovarian cancer front that we've had ever. The um, American Cancer Society lists ovarian cancer as the fifth most common cancer death in women. About 314,000 women worldwide were diagnosed in 2020. The ovarian cancer cells are so resistant to chemotherapy and immunotherapy that the fact, if they can develop a drug that really can target it and 
make some improvements, then that's wonderful. So well done, scientists at Tel Aviv University. I want to commend Google. This is not coming a moment too soon for my taste. I am so over the world of needing to remember 500 passwords. Well, can you use the same password for everything? No, because this one's got to be, it's case sensitive. This one's got to be capital letters and lowercase letters. Okay, can I use this as my version for capital and lowercase? No, this one requires numbers. Okay, use the numbers for that one. Okay, we're good. Can I use that for everything? No, this one requires capital letters, lowercase letters, numbers, and special characters. Okay, can I have one standard one? No. You can't because this one doesn't accept the hashtag or the pound as a special character. So you can't use that. Okay. So you end up needing to keep track of 20 different passwords. Oh, don't look now. 28 days have passed since you set up this password. You got to change all your passwords again. It drives me absolutely crazy. And God bless the good folks over at Google because Google has announced a major effort to let their personal account holders, of which I'm one, holding my Google Pixel 7 Pro right now. Not great with keeping Dr. Broilet's phone number, but fine just the same. Google is announcing this major effort to let its personal account holders log in with the password replacement known as passkeys. So this feature launched a couple of days ago for the company's billions of accounts And users will be able to proactively seek it out and turn it on. I am going to go forward with this right away. Google says it plans to promote passkeys in the coming months and start nudging account holders to convert their traditional username and password login to a passkey. What's a passkey? Well, password-based authentication has been standard across the Internet. The passkey scheme is specifically designed to address phishing attacks by relying on a different model that uses cryptographic keys stored on your devices for account uh, authentication. Something like a fingerprint or something along those lines. So I think this is great. I think everything should be fingerprint, right? I, I, you know, all the concerns about voting, who's voting and if the right people are voting and voter ID. If we can have fingerprints to turn on your mobile phone, wouldn't it be great? If we had thumbprint voting or something along those lines, the technology is there to do that. You, you, when you go to register to vote, you record your fingerprint, just like you do when you register your fingerprint for your mobile phone. And that's when you vote. But anyway, uh, the, the point is, I hope this is a tremendous step forward towards the demise of the password. Google, way to go. Uh, count me in. For Team Passkey, 100%. I want to commend William Kennedy, no relation to Robert F. Kennedy. He is a train conductor, and he spotted in uh, Tarrytown, which is a few miles north of New York City, he spotted and saved a young boy lost on the train tracks. A locomotive engineer, William Kennedy, was operating a southbound Hudson Line train near Tarrytown, and he noticed an unusual object on the northbound track. The object was a three-year-old boy. 
So he sent an emergency call out to trains in the area, catching the attention of a northbound conductor. And then they slowed down that northbound train as he approached the child who was straddling the electrified third rail. When the train screeched to a halt, the assistant conductor didn't waste a second. He leaped down the track, sprinted 40 yards ahead of the train, scooped up the young child. And uh, these conductors saved this boy. Five MTA employees were awarded commendations for their daring rescue of the boy. So uh, well done. Well done all around. But but for William Kennedy, no relation to George Kennedy from the Naked Gun movies, but for William Kennedy seeing that little boy and acting quickly, this could have been a very unfortunate situation. Well done, Mr. Kennedy. I want to commend the motorcycle gang, Widow Sons. Why? Well, they're a British motorcycle gang. They may be international, but I know they're in the U.K., A great-grandmother has fulfilled her 90th birthday wish to ride a Harley-Davidson thanks to this biker gang, the Widow Sons. So they took her, uh, they, uh, Barbara Morris got to ride on this Harley-Davidson, which is what she wanted to do, courtesy of this motorcycle gang. And she loved it. She said she felt 21 again during her spin around town. She mentioned to her family several years ago that if she made it to 90, she'd like to get back in the saddle one last time. And she was left stunned when her sons arrived recently at her nursing home with members of this biker group. So she was wearing a dress. She had no concerns about straddling the bike right there on the spot before taking the trip with 13 other bikers to a pub. And she loved it. She loved it. So she had a great time. And, uh, This biker gang, the Widow Sons, made it possible. In a similar vein, I want to commend Mary Silvestri. Uh, She's an inspiration to everybody. 92-year-old Mary Silvestri has finally achieved her dream of auditioning for the Radio City Rockettes decades after missing tryouts. Now, this is great. So when she was a young woman... She was supposed to be there auditioning for the Rockettes, and she couldn't make it. She couldn't get to New York, and she couldn't get anyone to take her. So she got the opportunity to do that and to meet all the Rockettes and talk with them. And, look, people get very into these Rockettes. I had a friend named Annette who I was very close to, Annette Batista, and she was similar to these ladies. When she was 75, for her 75th birthday, we took her skydiving because that's what she wanted to do. But um, she was really into the Rockettes, and uh, we went to several Rockettes shows. She, she loved it. So, um, so I give her a lot of credit for continuing to pursue her dreams, even at 92 years old. I want to commend Ron Nessman, a man who was also a real hero, but also a guy that was in the right place at the right time. Ron Nessman is a California man that saved a baby in a stroller from rolling into oncoming traffic. And this is all caught on video, and it's quite miraculous. So uh, this was in in California, and you see the stroller start rolling down the driveway at A1 Hand Car Wash. The baby boy's great aunt tries to run after it, but collapses to her knees. 
And a woman, Donna Grunderson, hears screaming. And it's the ant. She was sitting at a nearby patio when she heard these screams for help. And she looks back and she sees a stroller going down the driveway. And she said her heart dropped. At that exact moment, this woman sees her brother, Ron Nesman, running towards the stroller, which was also being pushed by very strong winds blowing through the high desert. The stroller was headed directly towards Bear Valley Road. Just before the stroller rolls into traffic, Nesman grabs it. He was there because he had just come from a job interview at a nearby Applebee's. He's been living with his sister for the past three months after being homeless for about eight years, in part because of depression from his girlfriend passing away. I mean, if that guy wasn't there for that job interview and didn't spring into action, there's no telling what could have happened. So I hope he gets that job at Applebee's. I would certainly write him a letter of recommendation. I want to commend Fang Bin. Fang Bin is a wonderful doctor and a brave soul. He is the man who first reported the COVID-19 outbreak. He documented the initial COVID outbreak in the Chinese city of Wuhan. What did he get for his trouble, you might ask? What, how does the Chinese government treat people that tell the truth about COVID? Oh, yes, you guessed correctly. They threw him in jail. And he has finally been released from jail after being there for more than three years. Can you imagine that? In, in New York City, you don't get three years for, uh, you know, in Chicago... You don't get three years for accidentally killing a baby with a stolen car. In China, they give you three years in jail for telling the truth about COVID. So um, I'm glad he's out of prison. But, I mean, it's such a shame. And the least we could do is commend him for his work in trying to warn the world about what was about to come our way. And uh, Fang Bin, he deserves every award there is, not a prison sentence. I want to commend Max Woozy. Max Woozy is a boy who, the so-called boy in the tent, who slept in the yard for three years. A 13-year-old British boy, who they call the boy in the tent, because he camped out in a tent for three years to raise money for charity. He was invited to King Charles' uh, coronation yesterday or Saturday. He became a national name when he raised more than $800,000 for local charity, North Devon hospice by pitching a tent in his backyard and sleeping in it for 1,099 nights. The selfless mission, which eclipsed his initial goal of raising $125,000 by more than 600%, caught the attention of the royal family and they, they invited him. You know, I think this whole monarchy in the UK is a giant waste of time and money. But I think it's nice that they invited him. If you're going to have a big thing and a big coronation, I think this is a wonderful thing to do. I want to commend the sculptor. Um, I, I'm going to pronounce this incorrectly. But the Danish sculptor Jens Galshiot. Because this sculptor created this beautiful piece of art called the Pillar of Shame. It's about nine yards tall. It's a statue depicting dozens of torn and twisted bodies commemorating the protesters killed in the crackdown in and around Tiananmen Square more than three decades ago. And he tried to put it up in Hong Kong, and police, of course, 
seized it in connection with what they said was an attempt to incite subversion, with media reporting it was a statue commemorating Beijing's Tiananmen Square crackdown on democracy protesters. You know, those protesters in Tiananmen Square, I mean, the guy that stood in front of the tank gets so much attention. But all those protesters, but particularly the ones that died, were incredibly brave and doing something that took takes a lot of courage. And I really give them a great deal of credit, and I'm glad that they were remembered in this sculpture by Jens Galshiot. And I'm just sorry that the Chinese government is so oppressive and so um, hostile towards freedom and artistic expression that they don't allow this thing to go on. All right. That concludes uh, this week's edition of Commendations. Uh, We will take your calls momentarily. Any thoughts, questions, comments, 833-969-4447, 833-969-4447. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. This is Aerosmith singing Janie's Got a Gun. They have, um, they're doing their farewell tour, but supposedly this is, unlike a lot of other bands, this really is a farewell tour. They apparently really are retiring from performing. So uh, figure why not um, not play them a little bit and uh, give them an opportunity. All right, um, if you heard any of Friday's show, We spent a fair amount of time. I I really appreciated the calls from everybody on Friday on the subject of the Kentucky Derby and horse racing. I don't want to repeat the things that I said, but essentially, I'll boil it down for you in 10 seconds. I was trying to wrestle internally with my ethical quandary of I love animals and I don't want to see them mistreated. I also don't want to encourage anything that in, that deals with the mistreatment of animals. But I also really enjoy everything about the Kentucky Derby, the gambling aspect, the hats, the uh, the, the drinking, mint juleps, the culture. I, I really like it. I'm into it. And I, I was hoping that somebody would call in and say, Frank, you don't have to feel bad about uh, watching the Kentucky Derby because of blank. And that one thing would, in my brain, just make it all okay. Nobody did. In fact, I heard from a number of people that had me even more convinced that horse racing is barbaric and too often, maybe not always, but too often results in the mistreatment of animals and horses specifically. So I did not watch 
the Kentucky Derby Saturday. First time in a while. Didn't watch. And lo and behold, I'm catching up on the news Saturday night into Sunday morning in between answering all these emails. And I see that in spite of the so-called recent efforts to make horse racing safer, seven horses died at Churchill Downs. That's the track where the Kentucky Derby is held. Seven horses died at the track in the lead-up to the Kentucky Derby. And so far, we don't yet have an answer as to what happened. There's speculation that at least two of the horses might have died due to drugs that their trainers were giving them. And, I mean, this is just horrific. I'm curious if you have a theory as to what happened with these seven horses. I mean, it could have been varying causes. But seven horses in a week? All at the same track, and it also happens to be the most famous track in the history of horse racing. I find it very strange. Uh, but if you have a thought, uh, either a theory or a thought, 833-969-4447. But this is not the first time we've seen controversy with the Kentucky Derby. Remember what happened last year? The morning after the Derby, the winning horse took a victory lap. And look, it turned out his trainer was uh, Eric Reed, and his rider, uh, Sonny Leon, it looked like they were stars. And then all of a sudden, um, it looked like there was some controversy. But Mage, the horse that won the Kentucky Derby this year, and his jockey and his trainer was poised to share the same status as last year. Because this was a horse that wasn't supposed to win, 15 to 1 odds. Last year, the horse that won, won at 80 to 1. So they thought these guys were going to be similar stars. But all of this horse's accomplishments, winning uh, the only big race that he had never won, all of this revelry that he should be enjoying right now was totally eclipsed by the death of seven horses at Churchill Downs in the lead-up to the Derby. Four horses were scratched because of veterinarians' concerns about their health. A fifth was scratched because the people that run Churchill Downs were suspicious of the trainer, Joseph Safi, after two of his horses collapsed and died following races. And officials declared their racetrack safe, and they suspended uh, Safi Joseph, not Joseph Safi. They suspended Joseph indefinitely from competing in the Derby or any other tracks owned by Churchill Downs. And then after two more horses on the Derby undercard suffered fatal injuries and were subsequently euthanized, it was clear that it was not just this one trainer, Safi Joseph. There's something going on here. And the question that I have that nobody seems to have an answer for is, who's responsible for this? Whose fault is this? After the Derby was over and the lights were going out on a tragic day, a lot of people release statements all saying the same thing. It's not our fault. It wasn't them. Churchill Downs put out a statement. Don't blame us. Um, The veterinarians put out a statement. Don't blame us. Everyone is rushing to evade responsibility. No one is taking ownership of this. But do the math. Seven horses dead in a week. It does not add up. Now, the New York Times had an interesting article about this. 
what does what what does the data show about America's oldest sport? Well, one of the things the data shows is that it's losing its athletes, its revenue, and its fans. And I can understand why. In 20 years ago, 2002, more than $15 billion was bet on horse races in the U.S. Last year, that fell to $12 billion. In 2000, nearly 33,000 thoroughbred horses were registered, almost double the number from last year. There were 4,300 stallions, four times the number from last year. Um, horse racing in the U.S. has admitted for years that it has a culture of drugs and lax regulation and a far higher rate of horses breaking down and being euthanized than most other places in the world. 30 years ago, the horse breeder and owner Arthur Hancock III delivered what he called his drugs and thugs speech at an industry symposium telling his colleagues colleagues what they already knew. Too many horses were running on performance-enhancing drugs or were so doped up on anti-inflammatories and painkillers that they were running unnaturally fast and hurting themselves, often fatally. And he offered up the Horse Racing Act of 1992, which called for drug-free racing. Uniform rules backed by stiff penalties and a central office to enforce them. 30 years later, finally, the Horse Racing Integrity and Safety Authority exists, but not without all sorts of continuing legal challenges and resistance from the horse racing community. So I don't know what's going on here, but they need to enforce the rules. They need to punish the wrongdoers. They need to do a full investigation, find out why these seven horses died, who's responsible, who cheated, who did the wrong thing, who was negligent in care, and throw them out. Throw the book at them. Take responsibility for the health and the welfare of both the human and the horse athletes. The sport, according to experts, has shown that it can make progress when the cheaters are disciplined and wrangled in. But seven horses died on horse racing's biggest stage in the last week and a half. Not only do animal rights advocates want to know who's responsible, but so does everyone. So do I. So does anyone who bets a dollar on the action or watches. It's the horses that are feeding everyone in this multi-billion dollar industry And it's the humans who are letting them down. Joe Drape uh, wrote that that sentence that the humans are letting them down in his New York Times column on this uh, because and I wanted a quote from it because I think he said it much more brilliantly than I ever could. All right. If you want to weigh in on this, you can. 833-969-4447. That's 833-969-4447. But if you're one of these people that prefers a spelled out phone number, our number is Ted Wow Gigs. Ted Wow Gigs. Uh, Let me say hello to Bunny from Cedarhurst. Hello there, Bunny. Uh, Listen, we all know what the reason is for the horses dying. This whole sport, if you call it a sport, it's corrupt. It has always been corrupt. They thrive on people like you being enamored by the mint julep 
type of a, of a, of a scene. It really is the mafia juicing up the horses for the past hundred years. And, by the way, there, there were many instances where not only did they sabotage other players, other, other horses, but also other jockeys. There was a jockey who had a peanut allergy, and they made him uh, somehow, uh, without eating peanuts, like somehow they, they, they poisoned him with, with the, the scent of peanuts prior to the race, and that made him lose. And the betting, the, have you ever been to a track? It's the lowest rung of society. These people are, are the lowest of the low. They're deviants. They're SO, as we say, socially off people who, who just can't get by on a regular life. Uh, you know, the, the regular, regular things of life. They have to get by on, on betting on, on, on the track, on the horses, and, and with paper and cigarettes and, and pencils and uh, just craziness. These people are the lowest of the low, and they don't care about horses dying. They care about making money. Wake well, up. Thank you, buddy. I appreciate that. But I will say this. Um, I think that uh, there are a lot of fans of the sport, and I, I don't I don't criticize everybody that goes to the racetrack the way that you just did. But I think there are a lot of people that watch these races, especially something like the Kentucky Derby, which is more mainstream than just going to Monmouth or Belmont or any uh, any regular racetrack where they have daily races. They do care about the horses, and I think a lot of people want to enjoy the sport. And are into the culture, including a lot of the things that you've mentioned, but they don't want to see they don't want to see the horses die. And I don't know what the solution here is. I don't know if we're gonna have to look at a situation where this sport is banned entirely, or if they can make some progress in terms of this whole thing. I I don't know. Uh Joe is in Queens. Hello there, Joe. Yeah, hi, Frank. Uh, Was some of the horses just did they break down on the track? Is that what happened? No, no. These were all before the race. Right. So so we're speculating that maybe they were taking a legal drug. Maybe they got tainted pharmaceuticals. Would you speculate that? I mean, that's what a lot of people believe happened, yeah. Uh, what what could be, uh, you know, what other explanation could there be? Uh, you got me. Uh, but you know what? You know what uh, is not cutting it with me is every entity involved here saying that it wasn't our fault. So, I mean, uh, there's no explanation that's been offered so far. And I realize this is only a day or two later, but thank you, uh, Joe. But when you're talking about these, this many horses all dying from the same track in a week... Something is really off here. All right. In a moment. Are you old? Tell me how you got to be old. 833-969-4447. Keep asking questions.
This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. You know what's interesting? Whenever you, Look, I think everybody pretty much wants to live a long time, right? I mean, don't you? Wouldn't you like to live to 90, 95, 100, 104, as long as you can be relatively healthy and, very, and, and still mentally sharp? I always found, you know, my grandmother who I was very close to, she really was a very lucky woman. Obviously, she was very sad to bury two husbands, especially two husbands named Frank. But she lived to be a month shy of 96 years old, and she got to know uh, her six grandchildren. uh, No, six, no, 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 six, seven grandchildren very well. And uh, had a very special relationship with each of them. She also got to know her uh, great-grandchildren, of which there was two, four, six, seven. Seven great-grandchildren very well and got to spend a lot of time with them. And until almost the day that she died, she was as sharp as a tack. I, I did radio interviews with her. I played clips from time to time. She was sharp. And she would, very social, even after she was widowed, she would, uh, was a master seamstress, something that she kept doing until she died. She was a guy, a, a person that loved to party. She would drink scotch every day. She'd play cards every day. Love the occasional, occasional trip to, uh, to uh, a casino. She was just very into life. And wouldn't you, if you could do that, if you could sign a contract that would guarantee you good health, opportunity to spend time with family, having all your faculties, and you get to do all that until you're 96 years old, wouldn't you jump at that opportunity right now? I would. The only thing better than that, the only thing better than doing that 95, 96, Doing that at 100. Uh, yesterday on CBS Sunday Morning, Dr. Henry Kissinger was, uh, he is turning 100 this month, and he talked about his life and his career and everything that comes with 
being 100. This is what he said he's most proudest of when it comes to foreign policy. One of the positive outcomes of the policy that was in fact pursued by every American administration of both parties was that nuclear weapons have not been used for 75 years, nor were they used by any adversary. So that, I think, is an accomplishment. Now, we can get into Henry Kissinger's views of foreign policy, but I'll tell you that. Some people may listen to Kissinger there at 100 years old and they'd say, oh, he doesn't sound so great. Kissinger has sounded that way for 60 or 70 years. So he doesn't sound much different now than he did when he was working for Nelson Rockefeller or Richard Nixon or, you know, doing his thing going back 60 or 70 years. But it got me thinking, along with a bunch of other articles that I've been reading, how do you make it to 100? How do you make it to 95? Look, I realize it's sort of an unfair question, but when we, when we, if you've made it, to 90, 95, to 100. To what do you attribute your longevity? Now, I've asked William Shatner this, or as I call him, Bill, who's now 92 years old, and I'm gonna, he's, got, he's got a new show out that I'm hoping to have him back on to promote. But I asked him, and he really didn't know. He basically said his joking answer was not dying. That's what he said. But a, a little deeper answer, and I can't remember if he gave me this answer publicly or privately, was essentially he attributed his um, longevity and his sharpness, because he's sharper at 92 than I've ever been. And he attributes that to being busy and to always having something to do. He doesn't have time to get dementia now or to get physically ill now because um, he's got something to do tomorrow. He's, he's doing a tour, he's doing a movie, he's writing a book, he's reading a book, he's visiting his grand. he's busy tomorrow, he's, and he's busy later today, so he's got no time for any of that. And that's almost how I feel. And I, I joked around with people during COVID because I never got COVID. I, was, I think I'm one of the few people that I know that never got a symptomatic case of COVID. And I joked around with people, I mean, I got every vaccine there is and every booster there was, but uh, and I'm sure that helped, but I would joke around with people, I don't have time, I don't have time to stay home for two, three days with COVID. I got things to do. And Shatner, I think, was sort of of the same mindset. And I think that's what he attributes his longevity to. But if you're a seasoned citizen, 90, 95, 100, how did you make it? That's what I'd love to know. Is there anything that you've done? Uh, Look, I mean, obviously, luck plays a role here. Obviously, genetics plays a role here. But is there anything that you do that you say, yeah, that's why I made it to 95. That's why I made it to 100. If so, I would love to hear that answer. Give me a call, please. 833-969-4447. That's 833-969-4447. Because you remember, I had um, Jan Giro last week in studio. At 90 years old, he's performing in a one-man show at 90 years old. And obviously, when I meet somebody that's in their 90s, I don't know what you call that. I know, uh, is that a nonogenarian, nonogenarian, nongenarian? I think it's nongenarian. When I meet a nongenarian, I ask them, 
How do you, what are you doing? What's the secret? This is what uh, Jan Giro said or didn't say. What's the secret to living to 90 and living a fulfilling life at 90? Tell me. I'd like to know myself. (laughs) (laughs) So he basically didn't answer. And then I prodded him a little bit more. And he did say that he had a pretty strict vegan diet. So if you're in your 90s, I want you to tell me how you made it this far. 833-969-4447. That is the question. A question. Since before your son burned hot in space and before your race was born, I have awaited a question. I read a story about Antoinette in Sarah, and I thought, this is interesting. She is 104 years old. And she said people are often curious to learn about the secrets to her longevity. And she is quick to point out that she doesn't really do anything out of the ordinary to stay healthy. She told the Today Show, or the t- Today's Show's website, I take care of myself. I do what I have to do. Now, what does that mean? I would rather you just not answer the question. If you're going to say, I do what I have to do, just don't answer. Okay. But she's 104. Once you reach triple digits, I think that's, you, you've deserved, you've earned kind of a lot of leeway in saying, giving whatever answers you want. Once you take care of yourself, everything gets done. So a couple of weeks ago, she celebrated her 104th birthday, and her family threw her a big party to mark this special occasion with multiple generations on hand for the soiree. She lives in my hometown. She lives in the same place that I live. I might have met this woman. She's probably a listener. In fact, Antoinette, if you're listening right now, please call in, 833-969-4447. She's got four children. Eight grandchildren, nine great-grandchildren. And she never could have predicted that she'd be around to see her family expand so much. But anyway, she has quite a bit of energy for 104 years old and a lot of spunk. And she said, she she's in a nursing home mostly, but ultimately she told the Today Show that she loves... Her beer. She said, who knows? That might be her secret. And she attributes it to beer. She's drinking beer every day. Now, I know plenty of people that drink beer every day or drank beer every day and did not make it to 104. But uh, I will tell you, my friend Barry Farber, he made it to 90. And at least towards the end of his life, he was he was hitting the sauce pretty hard. He would have uh, some hard liquor every day, just about every day. And, you know, he was no worse for wear. Still very sharp mentally and physically in decent health as well. So I'd love to hear your secret if you've made it to 90 or above. If you if you made it to 100, let uh, Kenneth know. We'll put you on the line right in front of Henry Kissinger because uh, – you know, you, you're entitled not to have to wait on hold. 833-969-4447. 833-969-4447. Let me begin with Jim in Manhattan. Hello there, Jim. Hi, how you doing tonight? I'd like to think uh, I'm doing okay. Yeah, you know, I, I, don't, I don't know if there is a secret because I had two uncles. I had one died about 96 and 97. He was religious. He ate very healthy. He walked four miles a day when he retired. He took it easy between the walks. 
and he was healthy till his last few months. I had another uncle died at 90, and he was very unreligious. He liked pornography, and he talked about it like a pig. He didn't eat healthy. He had a lot of health problems along the way, but he still made it to 90. So I don't know if there's a secret. Were those two uncles um, on the same side of the family? Like, Were they brothers? Uh, no, they were not on the not. same side. Okay, the so family. there's no uh, blood relation between the two of them? Uh, not really, no. Because uh, well, when you say the not- one who only made it to ninety, he had gout. He had to have a lot of heart operations. But he, you know, he, he that's when my family's kind of strong and physically strong, so he's able to make it through, even though he had to have these operations because he didn't live a healthy life. He didn't really exercise that much. Well, they say, and thanks for sharing that, uh, Jim. And sounds like you're in good shape genetics-wise. They say that genetics controls a lot of this, right? But Everyone knows don't smoke. I think that's one of the common things. Don't smoke. What else should you be doing or not doing? What are the common themes? My father, who, if you ever met him, you'd think he's younger than me. He's got fewer gray hairs than I do. He's in better shape than I do. He is, in many respects, probably quicker-witted than I am. And he studies this stuff very closely. And what he said, was that he did not, and again, this is anecdotal observation on his part, and now it's hearsay on my part, so please don't confuse this for anything resembling something that's scientifically meaningful. But what he said was that he found um, all of people that made it to their late 90s or over 100, the Willard Scott type people, he noticed that there was no commonality with their diet. Some were vegetarian, some ate a lot of meat. Some were low-carb, some ate a lot of pasta. No commonality with their diet, except one thing. All of them who made it to that certain age ate very little. According to him, and he, you know, he, he studies this stuff pretty closely, he was a trained economist, and then he was, um, you know, a health insurance executive for many years. But he he believes that's the key, that not eating a lot was the one commonality that a lot of folks that made it to their 90s or their triple digits had in common. I don't know if that's true, uh, but that was his contention. I'm curious if there's anything else Um uh, you know, Oscar Goodman, who's been on this show, who's in his mid to late 80s, he believes that the Bombay Sapphire Martini that he has every day, he's 83, actually. He's, he's not in his mid 80s. But he believes that that a Bombay Sapphire Martini that he has every day helps thin out his blood, and that helps him. I don't think that's been borne out by any reputable physician or medical researcher. But if you have a method... To your aging, I'd love to hear it. 833-969-4447. You're welcome to comment on anything else we're talking about as well. 833-969-4447. I do want to mention that uh, more and more publications are starting to pick up on that uh, complaint that I filed against the judge in the Trump case. And the, uh, the publication... Radar Online and also MSN.com, they um, they also uh, did an article on this. And I linked to it on my Facebook page. It was a pretty good article 
The one criticism I have of it is they identify me as a conservative radio talk show host, and I don't really consider myself a conservative. Trump was the first Republican presidential candidate I ever voted for, and uh, I, if you go issue by issue, I don't view myself as conservative as, at all. I really view myself as sort of a, an independent-style populist. But whatever, a whole article, and if that's the one thing that you might take issue with. And see, conservative is such a subjective term. Who's to say who's conservative, right? So for some people, I might be conservative. For other people, I may not be. So that article is on Facebook at facebook.com slash Moranofan. That's facebook.com slash M-O-R-A-N-O fan. I did take issue with the fact that, um, you know, one there was one comment, somebody posted that article on their Facebook page, and it was not someone I knew, uh, and I don't think it was somebody that listened to this show, but they wrote, they linked to that article on msn.com, and they said, LOL, oh, please, the MAGA maggot moron Frank Morano is just pissed his hero the cowardly orange piggy dictator wannabe crybaby sore loser racist neo-nazi fascist spoiled rotten temper tantrum throwing mentality of a six-year-old brat liar thief and murderer murderer donald j trump is being treated like the criminal he is frank morano thinks the orange piggy should have a trump appointed crooked judge to let his traitorous terrorist hero go and that really bothered me, this comment. One, because if you listen to some of the people that listen to me regularly, they don't think I'm liberal. They don't think I'm conservative enough because I don't believe that the 2020 election was rigged or whatever else. Also, uh, this guy knows nothing about me or anything that I've done or anybody that I've supported. And he's willing to just write me off as MAGA maggot moron. Three. I never said that the person presiding over Trump's case should be a Trump-appointed judge. All I said was that this judge should follow the same rules that every other judge in the state of New York has to follow. That you can't make political contributions. Why should this guy get to preside over a trial and he's donated to the opponent of the guy whose trial it is? Four, I think I'm up to four. Why you would go out of your way, and I know you don't like Donald Trump, fine, but why you would go out of your way to call a name to someone that's respected and admired by tens of millions of Americans, I just don't understand what you gain by that. Rather than call him a name and uh, call people that support him a name, And I would say the same thing if somebody said this about Biden. Why not try to win them over? Why not try to persuade them that your method of governing is the correct one? And I just found it so vitriolic and mean-spirited. And I was also bothered by the fact that this guy, the guy that made that comment, uh, Dan or Don something, didn't care that this judge violated the rules. Are we really saying that As long as we get the outcome we want in criminal trials, it doesn't matter if the judges follow the rules. To me, I don't care whether you're a Trump supporter or a Biden supporter. 
And that's why I'm hoping this complaint that I filed does get broader attention here. But it shouldn't matter whether whether you're a Trump supporter or a Biden supporter. Everybody should want every judge to follow the rules. Because once the judges don't follow the rules, how can any lawyer, any juror, any defendant that comes before them be expected to follow their instructions on the law? 833-969-4447. So if you want to read that, it's on my Facebook page at facebook.com slash Moranofan. The article is on there, and I also have a link to the uh, full complaint on there as well. 833-969-4447. Let me say hello to Norman from Brooklyn. Hello there, Norman. Yeah, hi, Frank. Um, I'll listen. I'm, I'm not 90, as I was telling Ken. Ah, sorry. Um, but um, my mom was 97 when she died five years ago, and my uh, grandmother was 97, and my great-grandmother was 104. So I think there's definitely a genetic component. Um, my mom, all three of them were lean. None of them, they were all quite thin. And uh, my mom ate pretty much everything. And she lived at the largest veterans home in the country, which is in Yonville, California, the last few years of her life. And uh, she was very active. She taught German uh, to, to the other uh, uh, residents. And um, even though she became legally blind, she read pretty much daily with a special machine, which allowed her to, you know, um, um, you know, to see, to see the thing she was reading. Uh, her brain was sharp to the end. Uh, my grandmother was a, a little different. Uh, she wasn't quite the intellectual. Uh, she watched a lot of Lawrence Welk and, uh, pretty much, uh, I, they ate pretty well. They all were pretty lean. My mom smoked till she was in, like 90 years old. And then she decided, Oh, I'm not smoking anymore. She smoked from 14 to age 90. Um, and, uh, I don't know, uh, pretty much, uh, keep active, man. I think that's the big thing. All right. Well, so that's what your, your, your relatives did. They kept active. Yep. All right. Thank you. I, I, like that goes hand in hand with what I said with Shatner. It like if that's the key to longevity, right? Um, and I can't imagine the uh, occasional martinis that I'm having is helping my case for longevity at all. But if that really is the key, uh, the Norman in Brooklyn style or Shatnerian style, just be, keeping active. I am. I, I'm not saying this to brag. I'm not saying this to be anything but descriptive. I am the busiest person that I know. I really, I am going to live to 200 if it's just a question of being active. I don't think there's anybody that keeps my schedule. And you know what? And that's why I get so upset when people complain that I don't call them back. Now, a lot of times on Saturdays, I don't even turn my phone on. And I had a miss, a couple of missed calls from a friend of mine. And then he's emailing me on top of that. Oh, you know, how does someone get in touch with you? These people have no idea what it's like to be nocturnal, and they also have no idea of what it's like to be busy 18, 19 hours a day. And and it's like you owe them an explanation as to why you're not prepared to drop everything when they reach out to you suddenly. It really does irk me. Dennis is in Cold Spring. Hello there, Dennis. Good, mo- Good morning, Frank. Great show, Thank as you. always. Thank uh, you. My wife... My wife was a groom back in the late 70s, early 80s at Belmont for a very famous... So, uh, Dennis, you, you, you broke up a little bit there. Your wife was a what at Belmont? A, a groom. A groom. She groomed horses. Okay, groom, yeah. gotcha. So she was helping me train her you know, walk. She was like a walker, a hot walker, whatever got it was. It. So she did whatever she had to do. 
Uh, and so she goes, always love horses. 40 years later, she has her first two horses in the last 10 years. They are a majestic animal. Wow. The thoroughbreds, thoroughbreds want to run. I'm not sure they want to run as far as they run, and she isn't. And she's not sure they want to run, they want to run as early as they run. So it starts with the breeding. There's probably abuse in some of the breeding, and there's then abuse, abuse in the drugs, and then there's abuse in running them before they're really ready to run that far, especially the two-year-olds. So she, she, she cries every time she hears about them putting down a horse who probably is running more than it, further than it should. So maybe the races, when they're only two, need to be a little shorter. But it's all, it's all about the money, just like everybody else that called and said. And there was organized crime involved, and there was others involved, and it, it gets dangerous. But in New York State, where our three big I Love New York tourism things will be gambling, cannabis, and abortion, this is what we get from the government of the New York State. So I would say if you're looking for a hint to look into, there's going to be a popcorn show tonight in Cold Spring Beacon over liberals fighting with liberals over something called the Fjord Trail. Fjord Trail. All right. Well, thank, thank you, uh, Dennis. Appreciate that. Yeah, I don't want to get down the, go down that road because uh, that, that uh, is a totally separate can of worms. But there you go. Also, he was on a bad cell phone. It's just very frustrating when, you know, I'm trying to follow the ups and downs of his phone call. But uh, well, what can you say? Poor phone screening, I guess. All right. Uh, All right what we're going to do is uh, we're going to give you an opportunity to win $1,000 in a moment. If you are the seventh caller to this number, 833-969-4447, that's 833-969-4447, we're going to give you an opportunity to play the $1,000 Minute. And what that means is if you can answer 10 trivia questions in 60 seconds or less, you'll be $1,000 richer. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. This is 
The great Neil Young. I love this song. I'm a big fan of Neil Young. And, uh, you know, I'm, I, uh, I didn't meet him, but I did see Neil Young in person one time. You know where I saw him? Trump Tower. And uh, I had a meeting with Donald Trump. And my friend and I, who, were, uh, who was at the meeting, he, we, Donald Trump, as you might imagine, had as his sort of assistant. This is, what year is it now? This is 10 years ago. So um, he had as an assistant, or his, I don't know if assistant's the right word, but the person that was sort of the the guide to the main conference room. And everyone else in the meeting is lined up to get pictures with Donald Trump. So my friend Joe and me, we see this gorgeous woman, a young woman, must have been 24 years old, as the gatekeeper. And so everyone else is lining up to talk to Donald Trump, Joe and me. We made a beeline for this gorgeous woman, you know, and we're making conversations with with her, and she was super nice. I don't remember her name. And um, she, uh, and I said, oh, you know, do you enjoy this? You must get to do a lot of interesting things. And and she says, yeah. You know, I get to meet such interesting people. I get to meet you guys. And uh, you'll never guess who's coming in here next. And she said, uh, and we said, who? She said, Neil Young. Neil Young is coming in here right after you guys leave. I I said, you're kidding. And yeah, she said, yeah, he's coming in. Fact, if you just go over there, you'll see him. Sure enough, that's what we did. Saw Neil Young coming in. Really cool. We didn't talk to him or anything, but uh, you didn't get the sense that he was that into just having a, a conversation with anyone at the time other than Trump, which he did. And it's so funny because he then became so critical of Trump later on, but Goes to show. It is what it is. All right. Without further ado, it is time for The Other Side of Midnight presents It's the $1,000 Minute. Answer 10 questions correctly in one minute, and you could win $1,000. Here's your host, Frank Murano. Jackie is in Maryland, listening on WCBM Land. Hello, Jackie. Hi. Jackie, have you heard this segment before? Yeah, I, I listen to you every night. Oh, great. Okay, well, thank you for listening. So you know what to do with this segment, right? Yes. Okay, so if you're ready, we'll get started. Uh, and uh, just to shout out whatever answer comes to your mind, okay? Okay. Okay. All right. What day is it? Monday. What is the name of the famous doll that has been around since 1959 and is produced by Mattel? Cabbage Patch? No, I'm I'm sorry, it's uh Barbie. Barbie is the uh is the is the famous doll that's been around since uh since 1959. But uh, a good guess though. I uh, I used to have a Cabbage Patch uh doll, but I'm going to put you on hold, Jackie, and give Kenneth your information. We're going to send you a uh, a prize. They um, Cabbage Patch Kids are not that old. They're only I think from the late seventies, early eighties, not the fifties. And they were never they were produced originally by a company called Coleco. They were briefly produced by Mattel, but no, it is not. Uh, they, they definitely don't go back to the fifties. So sorry, Jackie. I was ro- I was rooting for Jackie. I thought she was. Uh, a nice lady, and I appreciated that uh, she was doing her thing. All right, uh, eight 
833-969-4447. If you want to comment on anything that we have discussed today and weigh in on uh, anything along those lines. Um, in any event, uh, let me say hello to JP is in Brooklyn. Hello there, JP. How you doing there, Frank? Well, I've been listening to you for a while. I'm usually listening to Curtis, but uh, I wanted to call you up and tell you I owned some horses for a while. And the problem with the horses, Frank, is that they're so fragile, you know, that in this country we race them for speed. When in England and in Ireland, they run them for distance. They run them a little easier. They're a little lighter. In this country, we're, we're so quick to put speed into them, and they're so fragile, these animals, that they break down. And that's the problem. That, that really what it is is, you know, today they don't want to raise them no more. Today they want to breed them. They're more interested in breeding them than they are in racing them. So what do you think uh, the, that's, what, where the, that's where the big money is. What do you think the the best way to handle this is? Well, I, I me personally, since I've owned trotters and, and thoroughbreds, is that uh, uh, we we have to we have to train them differently, and we have to. Uh, Lighten up on them because they're very fragile. Their legs, they're so, I mean, they're so fragile. It's unbelievable that you can't put speed into them so much. You have to do it more like in, like in Ireland and England where they, where they do it for, they, they, they stretch them out for endurance. They, they train them easy. They train them easier and they, and they're not as tough on them. And, and that makes a big difference. Now, now we're not talking about you know all the finagling that goes on with them drugging them and all this. Right. Well, you know, I mean, clearly goes on also. Yeah, JP. You know, there's but, cl- clearly something wrong when you have seven dying in a week, right? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, definitely. It, it has to be something where 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 there's something wrong with the track or or just something. Something's for Daisy about it. Yeah, that's for you sure. Know, that's you know, for sure. You know, Frank, and I just wanted to mention one thing to you. Sure. Uh, I've heard from Curtis that you're a, that you're a good crapshooter. He always talks about you as a bagada being a crapshooter. And I got a quick story to tell you that I think you might enjoy. Is being a, I'm a fellow crapshooter also. Okay. Well, okay. What is it? Sure. Yeah. Go ahead. Okay. I was. I was playing craps one night at the Bagada. You bet the thousand on the call screening today, morning. Kenneth. I gotta say, what was that? No, nothing, nothing, nothing. No, go ahead. I was shooting craps at the Bagada one night. It was like four o'clock in the morning, and it was only me and this high roller that was playing at this table. And I, I was down to my last twenty-five dollars, and I and I hit three yo's in a row. And I turned it into twenty eight thousand one hundred twenty five dollars. Wow! So th- see that you, that does have my thing. So well, you had a, a twenty five dollar bet on the yo, and then right. you hit that, and I, then I parlayed it to three seventy five. Oh, man, wow! I I parlayed it into eighteen hundred and seventy five, and I parlayed oh. that into twenty eight thousand. 
uh, $125, no, $625. That is outstanding. That is outstanding. And, and I, they, wouldn't let me, they wouldn't let me go to the next. I wanted to parlay it again. No, no. I, I think, do it. thank goodness. Uh, that is great. Uh, good for you, JP. That's the kind of thing I dream about. See, uh, no, every craps player says that they would do that. Right. Well, not that, but the standard thing, what what craps players dream of is taking five dollars and you put it on the on the say the hard eight because the hard eight pays uh, it pays nine to one. So if you if you get five dollars and you put it on the hard eight and the hard eight hits, that's a four and a four. That means you then get $50, right? They give you $50. You've won $45. Now, what every craps player says that they will do, and I've done this from time to time, is keep the $50 up there. Press the hard eight. And then you try and shoot that hard eight again, and then you get $500 back. It really only works if you're not at the craps table. I mean, I've done it, but... What most people do is they come down after that they hit that first hard eight because they want that $50. It takes a lot of gumption to leave it up there, and I've done that, and you lose it. I've never had the two consecutive hard eights when I left the full amount up there. I've hit consecutive hard eights before, but not for leaving the full amount up there. What he did, that is – I've never heard of that. You, you, you understand what he said? Yo, 11 is um, – that's that's when you roll an eleven, and so he bet on the yo, which pays I think seventeen to one, twenty five dollars, and then hit it again and again. I mean that's that's a lot of onions. I give him a lot of credit. That was a good caller, I must say. Um, I take back my snarky aside to the to the audience and to Kenneth. By the way, I want to thank our newest. Station in the other side of Midnight Empire, WNOS, 1450 AM in New Bern, North Carolina. So uh, great to be on WNOS with some great personalities uh, on, uh, on in New Bern, North Carolina. I have to be honest, prior to this weekend, I knew nothing about New Bern, North Carolina. But uh, I've tried to do some research, and uh, I'll keep an eye out for New Bern-related news. I figured, let me see who the notable residents are from New Bern. And a couple of baseball players that I knew, a couple of football players that I knew, basketball player. Other than that, there were not a lot of household names, necessarily, from... uh, New Bern, North Carolina. But I am glad to be on. Interestingly enough, Jules Verne has a novel from 1896 called Facing the Flag. And it features New Bern as the place where one of that story's main characters is committed to an asylum by the U.S. government. So there you have it. That's a claim to fame. To make it into a Jules Verne book? Absolutely. I have several friends that live in North Carolina uh, James Toto, uh, Patrick Ryan, and it turns out none of them are near New Bern. So there you have it. If you're if you're in New Bern, I hope you're enjoying the show. That's all I'm saying. All right. Uh, I was talking about longevity earlier. You might remember 
I did an interview with uh, Bea Franklin a couple of uh, months ago. She had just turned 98, and this didn't get into how she made it to 98, but I did ask her how she stays so sharp at 98 years old. This is what she said. What do you do? What's the B. Franklin methodology at staying so razor sharp at, mentally at 98? Well, physically, I, my balance is very bad, so I now have a uh, caregiver just to make sure that I don't fall down as many times as I've fallen in my life. And uh, I forget things also. You know, I... I uh, don't remember things. I, I, I go to temp, to uh, the synagogue, and people greet me, and I don't. And I was very active in temple. I spent a lot of time going to services, and we had a gift shop, and I ran the gift shop, went shop, uh, buying uh, merchandise for the gift shop. Uh, and I don't recognize, oh, I recognize the people, but I can't come up with their names sometimes. And that's embarrassing for me. But I just know that this is my life. This is the way it's going to be. And I accept it. And I, that's all I can say. I don't, oh, I did exercise when I could. And uh, I did, did a lot of walking. And uh, I think that's that's mm-hmm. it. Yeah, and that- I did do crossword puzzles also, but I'm not too sharp about doing crossword puzzles anymore. <laughs> You know, I do think there's some value in that crossword puzzle uh, situation. I really do. All right. 833-969-4447. Joe is in Ron Konkama. Hello, Joe. Hey, Frank. How are you? I'm well. Thanks. Just got back. I was there for a week. And you got back from where? St. Petersburg, Florida. Oh, great. Okay, terrific. And it was so relaxing, Frank. The people were so polite. And I think the big key to living life to the fullest is, number one, you got to enjoy it. And living in New York, me and my wife said on the way home that we got to get out of here. It's just, it's just too much stress. Everybody was so polite, just smiling. Uh, I met people from Maryland, Nebraska, and they all spoke their minds. As soon as I got back from New York, I got stressed out again. And and also, like you and myself, working the overnight shift, my doctor's been telling you to me for years. They call it the graveyard shift for a reason. And I made a decision. I told my wife that this is probably going to be my last year doing the overnight. Oh, boy. Trying to just maybe it, it just it take. Frank, I was so happy down in Florida and relaxed. It was just a difference. And what a difference. And I, I didn't watch the news once. It was another key. I, I came home and I clicked on Fox News and I was hearing all the tragedies. I didn't watch, listen to any of that. I was enjoying a nice cigar a day. Nice glass of wine. It was the perfect lifestyle down there. John Casamitidis is right because they're building all these um, condos down in St. Petersburg. If you want to extend your life, you got to live down there. It is just paradise. Have a great night. Great show, like always. Thank you, Joe. Appreciate that. You know, it's funny. Uh, the 
There's one very funny remark in the Facebook group, and it's at my expense, but it's great. So I have to repeat it. Benedetto Nuzzo comments, I noticed no seniors over 90 called your show. Obviously, the secret to longevity is not listening to your show. (laughs) Well done, Benedetto. Well done, indeed. Hey, um... We're going to do 15 seconds of fame in a minute. If you want to start queuing up for that, you can. 833-969-4447. You know, I saw such an interesting article in the Wall Street Journal, an, uh, an op-ed, really, about, about prayer. The headline is, it's by Mike Kerrigan, who's one of their, he's an attorney from Charlotte. The headline is, did my prayer solve a fictional murder? And he's Catholic the writer, and he gets into how he's been praying, looking for insight. And all of a sudden, he and his wife were watching this show, Midsummer Murders, which I guess is on Amazon Prime. And in the middle of him praying the rosary, they stopped the episode uh, previously, and they had fallen asleep around 20 minutes in, far too soon to crack the case. But in the middle of the rosary, it's It comes to him clear as day, almost as if it's divine inspiration, who the killer is on this fictional TV show. And he's convinced that God gave him insight in a surprising form just to show that he could. And the insight was he told him who the killer was on this TV show. And sure enough, they finished the rest of the episode and his gut was correct. So I thought it was so interesting, and I do think there's something to it. I'm going to link to this article on my uh, Facebook page right now if you want to check it out, facebook.com slash MoranoFan. Did did my prayer solve a fictional murder, which I thought was funny? It's, It's funny, but it's also poignant, and I think he's being sincere here. I don't think he's joking around. All right, we'll do 15 seconds of fame in a moment, 833-969-4447, straight ahead. The other side of midnight. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. Other side of midnight. We miss Andy and we miss his contributions to the program very much. You know who's going to be here tomorrow? Very much looking forward uh, to, you know, there's a, a lot of stuff, a lot of news on the Tucker Carlson front that I didn't get to today. You know, one of the, one of the things, and we'll do this tomorrow, but uh, one of the things that I was going to talk about was Fox News 
He's still paying Tucker. And they don't want to let him go to another station. So as it stands now, I mean, I'm sure this will be hashed out legally. But as it stands now, it, it, I don't know if this number is accurate, but Axios is reporting that Fox News is prepared to pay Tucker Carlson $20 million a year until the end of his contract, when it's up in January of 2025, $20 million a year prorated to not do anything, to just sit home and not be on TV. Now, can you imagine... I'm I'm sure Tucker wants to be on TV, and I hope he does come back to TV. But can you imagine getting paid $20 million a month with the loan provision that you don't do anything? I have to say, I know he's trying to get out of this. That's got to be the greatest job in the world, to get paid $20 million to just not do anything? I'd love that. All right. Without further ado, uh, unless, you know, maybe maybe one of you is uh, up with these odd hours because you're getting paid to not do anything. It is time for, if that applies to you, give us a call. 15 seconds, 1-833-969-4447 as part of... The Other Side of Midnight. This is 15 Seconds of Fame. Russell! Hey, if Curtis walked in on the surfer strangler on the subway choking someone to death, would he stop the homicide or would he just be part of the lynch mob that stood by with their mouth open doing nothing? Neil! Yeah, Frank, thanks to the Biden administration, the price of meat is so high, I think they're killing off those horses so they could have a nice horse steak for dinner. <laughs> uh, 833-969-4447. Robert! Robert. Yes. Please write a email. Your congressperson makes schedule a fentanyl schedule one control substance illegal as heroin. Ralph. Okay, I'm, I'm reading the book right now here, Frankie. Uh, one is called Lucky. How Joe Biden really won the presidency, and that one about the Kennedy. Uh, Kennedy, Last Lion, The Fall and Rise of Dave Kennedy. I think you would be interested about this book when I'm done reading. It's yours. You know, I actually actually have that book, uh, Last Lion. Don't send it to me. I have that book. I have not read it yet in all candor, but I I do have it. All right. That uh, about slams the lid on things for today. Kevin Jackson is here tomorrow. Uh, That's what I started to talk about, the Tucker thing. He was fired from Fox News, so we're going to get his perspective on... Uh, the Tucker Carlson situation and a bunch of other things. And uh, looking forward to it. We've got some fun stuff throughout the week today. And uh, I'm going to be reaching out to the good folks in Shatnerland, see if he'll come on to talk about his new show about Mars. We'll see. Until tomorrow, Frank Morano, good day. <laughs> 